friends and fellow Buffy lovers, and welcome to our podcast, where we discuss each episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in detail, focusing on digging deep into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing. I'm Leah. I'm Sarah. I'm Tabby. And this is Becoming Buffy. Hey Scoobies, Sarah here. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to give you guys a few announcements. First of all, we will be placing a trigger warning on this episode as we will be discussing topics such as suicide and self-harm. If that is something you are sensitive to, I highly recommend not listening to this episode simply because it will be sprinkled throughout. Also, uh, this episode will be airing on July 1st, and after which we will be taking a couple-week break and we'll be coming back with Bad Eggs on August 5th. So don't worry, we haven't gone anywhere permanently. It's just a temporary hiatus. We will be back in August to finish strong with season two. So until then, you guys, enjoy this episode. Hey guys, welcome back to Becoming Buffy. Today we are talking about I Only Have Eyes for You, episode 19 of season two. But we have a very special guest with us, Destiny. Hi, Destiny. Thanks for being with us today. Hi. All right. So we always make our guests introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about how they came upon Buffy, how long they've been watching Buffy for, anything else. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I've pretty much grown up my whole life with Buffy. Um, I was first introduced to Buffy, like just watching it on TV as it like reruns when I was like 10 years old. And um, like I would just – it kind of would just <laughs> – they would come on random episodes, so I didn't really know what season I was on. I was just like, hey, this is cool, Vampire Slayer. Um, <laughs> and then my mom kind of, like, made me stop watching it because of all these reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, maybe within that same year, we'd be, like, at Best Buy or Barnes & Noble, and I would be going down the DVD aisle, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is Buffy. <gasps> Mommy, can I buy this episode <laughs> or whatever? It's, like, $20. And we. I, my stupid self, like, I'm just like, I want to own Buffy, like, just get me Buffy. And so I bought, like, I made her buy me that season, and it was season three. Um, and then it just kind of became like a every year for my birthday or for Christmas, like, I would get gifted a season of Buffy, but it would be like totally out of order. So it'd be like season three, <laughs> then season six, <laughs> then season one, then season seven, That's then like funny. so on and so forth. And it wasn't until I was like 18 that I got the full collection. Um, but the nice thing that I loved that even though it was like out of order, um, it was kind of like piecing together a full puzzle. And so every year when I would get a new season, I would start from the beginning of whatever season I had. Mm. So then I would like start to watch it fully in like full cycle. So I've like literally watched Buffy over and over for years, almost every year. It wasn't until like maybe last year or the year before that I like haven't watched Buffy in that year. So I've constantly just always watched Buffy. And like, the nice thing is, is like in knowing Buffy in those retrospects, I like when going through my own life um, and the own different trials and things that I would go through, I would know like, hey, season six is going to help me heal through this or um, season five is going to help me go through this. So things like that. It's been just Buffy has been with me through these things. That's really cool. I think that's such a unique way to watch the show. 
And you probably like picked up on things and grasped certain things. Like probably like if you watch like season six first and then go back and watch season four or whatever, you're like, oh, you would probably start to point out and pick out little things, you know, in different character development that most first time viewers probably didn't even notice, you know, until their second or third watch. What's wild to me is the fact of like the specific order that you got. And I'm just like that. <laughs> you went from three, which is a great season, but like, oh my gosh, some dark yeah. themes. Amazing. And then going from like a, a teaser to season six to straight season six and being like, what is the show? Like, <laughs> and I feel like like the fact that you became a fan out of watching those two out of order just like really is amazes me because I feel like you can only really truly appreciate six if you've seen all the other seasons. And then you went and watched season one. So to go from like six to whiplash, one, man, like the hardness and then the innocence yeah. of season one, just wild. Yeah. And it's hard because it's like you think about like, I mean, obviously the people who this is the non-spoiler section, so they don't know what each season holds. And so when we're like, oh, my gosh, jumping seasons is crazy. Like they can only grasp, you know, a fraction of how crazy it is to just jump around to certain seasons. So I think that, you know, Tabby's right. The fact that you have stayed around, like, after jumping through the, all those seasons really shows the fact that you're a true fan. <laughs> I think um, I think I tried to piece together from what I remember seeing on TV from what I was mm, able to. That makes and so sense. There, were some, there were some episodes from season one and season five that I vaguely remember that I was like, ooh, okay, so I kind of know what's going on. Like, so I know the big things that happened in season five that would be important to know in season six. So I was like, okay, I can, I kind of get it. I kind of get what's going on here. But still, like the heavy themes in mm-hmm. both season three and season six, it's like, I don't know. I think, man, I might have been like 11 or 12, like getting those and like not fully appreciating and understanding for a reason. Yeah. You know, good yeah. reason as a 12 year old. Um, but like, as I got older, like realizing as I would rewatch, like, oh, oh, these are, these are heavy. But at the time that I was older, I had the other seasons to kind of fill and give it that deeper meaning. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think we, we all can relate with that. And most everybody can who watch the show younger is, you know, there's themes that you didn't pick up on and, and full storylines that you didn't fully grasp until you were much older and watched it your third, fourth, however many time. And I think that that's just what makes this show so rich is you can kind of appreciate it at any age. Um, and you can go back and get something new out of it at each rewatch, which I don't know that I can say that for many shows. Yeah. Well, also digs through every single thing you can think of and and like the fantastical world and real life. So I feel like there's stuff that I watch and I really feel when I watch it. But then if I haven't gone through it, it's like there's certain things that I myself had not gone through. Um, and so I know that if I, if I ever do and some of them I will have to go through in the future, it's like if I have to watch those episodes again, it's going to hit me way differently. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or even just like I, I've been a fan for years and years. And then um I was telling Destiny earlier, like I I uh stopped watching just because like I was like the only one in my family at the time, other than Sarah, but Sarah lived in a different state mm-hmm. that like watched Buffy. Cause my sister Hannah, I think, has seen a little bit, but she it wasn't really her thing. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna push through. And then I I like watched a certain episode in season six. I was somewhere in season six. 
And I remember being like, oh my gosh, what? I don't even, this is nothing how I remember the show being at all. And then I like pushed through or whatever. And then coming back and rewatching, we keep talking about season six, but it's true. It's like when you go through, <laughs> if you know, you know. When you go through some of the stuff that's represented in season six, coming back to it, you're like, this just, it, you feel it so much more and it's so much more impactful because it's like, even though it is a fantastical show, they, really either dig through deep stuff either with metaphors or with real life stuff and so it really hits you because you're like and lee and i were talking about this on the on the drive back our drive up here yes uh today and we were talking about how much like shows and movies are more than because people people kind of find it funny that i just get so wrapped up in shows and movies and they don't Mm -hmm. understand it because like it's fake and i'm like okay (laughs) destiny's face (laughs) I'm like, I mean, I mean, I mean, it is, but it's like a lot of people when they thought about the idea of like the directors, the producers, the writers, when they were sitting down, they're like, I've either gone through something like this, I've experienced someone like this, mm-hmm. or I want to represent something that is important to me. It's coming from a piece of them and some of the actors and actresses really just like, especially Sarah Michelle Gellar, especially this show where they're like, I've gone through a lot of this, or even like some of the actors were going through a lot of stuff that the characters were going through at the exact same time. And so it was like, you see the pain and it's real for them. And it's stuff that people have actually gone through. So it's, it helps people, you know? Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, same thing for music too, you know, like, I mean, just because it's fictional or just like, you know, it, it still, like you said, it helps people feel and it helps them cope and it helps them heal in some ways too. Like that's, it could be fiction, but you know, this, the concepts, the plots are still in some ways reality. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Destiny, tell us why you wanted to talk about this episode in particular. Oh, God, put me on the spot. <laughs> um, honestly, so when Tabby had asked me like eons ago, about like one of my favorite episodes this one did come to mind as far as like the season just because it it makes you feel (laughs) like Mm -hmm. the dialogue the context um it has one of my favorite quotes um especially from giles Mm -hmm. on it that i definitely take um to heart Mm -hmm. because it just it reminds you and again i think like the a lot of the hurt that buffy feels um and goes through and the healing that she has to go through is definitely a lot of what I think I've had to do in my mm. own life. And what I've, um, I don't know, just seen and just like, you feel it. You, I'm, I'm such an empath, guys. Um, I, I'm talking to three of us who are the same. <laughs> way, so. I seriously am like, if I, yeah. I'm like that type of person that if I see in the commercial, somebody's crying, I'm going to cry. Oh, girl, me too. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad. Buffy um, is the best place for us to do that. Oh my gosh. Yes. So it's just definitely one of those things that like you definitely can immerse into this episode and it just has a lot to give you. And I love like the vibes. Um, It's truly scary. Like when I first saw it when I was younger, it legitimately gave me nightmares. Like zombie James was terrifying. <laughs> um, and so um, like it's a it's a ghost episode, like all of these things. Like I just there's so many things to love about it, I think. So I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And the no, acting. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's well written. It's well acted. It's well shot. It's, yeah, there's not much that's amiss about this episode. It's really, really well done. 
And I think so many people sleep on the back half of season two because you have some of these episodes that are mediocre. And so then, or there's more, I guess I should say, standalone episodes. And so I think people sleep on this episode in particular because it's wedged in there with some maybe like not fantastic episodes where in actuality, I think this is one of the more underrated episodes of the series or of this season at least, you know? Yeah, totally. So... All right, let's jump in and talk about I Only Have Eyes for You. You guys ready? I only have eyes for you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think that means she's ready. Okay. All right, so written by Marty Noxon, who I think at this point is like won the award for writing the most episodes, even more than Joss Whedon. Um, Directed by James Whitmore Jr. Aired April 28th, 1998. I Only Have Eyes for You is – the title's based off of the song I Only Have Eyes for You by the Flamingos, which is the song we hear throughout the entire episode. Uh, it was technically written in 1959. That's one of like the biggest goofs about this episode. It's technically four years after this was after. set. I know. <laughs> like you guys were going to do your research. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's a little – I feel like that's kind of like – they were like, oh, but I really like this song. Okay, whatever. Nobody will know. Yeah, right. <laughs> but why couldn't they make the episode plot in 1959? That is I true. <laughs> that's true. They're like, they're like oh, darn it. Or we have this old yearbook that says yeah. the 55, so oh we have to use this yearbook. <laughs> That's true. Like, we got to use this prop. Especially since the year really doesn't have anything to do with the plot. Yeah. Like, flashbacks could have been set in, like, the 80s, and it would have still been fine with the plot. Right. Like, it really had nothing to do with Well, it. I think it was supposed to be the 50s because it was a little bit more taboo in the sense of... Um, like the teacher. I mean, it's still definitely taboo to have a relationship. Yeah, I was about to say. I was like, I hope it's still taboo now. (laughs) But I think, I think the idea was that it's set in the fifties. Things were a lot more like all about appearances and all about. So it would have been like, obviously, it's still a bad thing now. But it would have been like completely like we shun you from society, not just for the teacher, but for James himself. You know. Right. So I think that's why they decided to do it, but. I don't know. Yeah, it's a little interesting that it's set in the 50s and they still could have done it in 59. They really could have. 4 years does not <laughs> or make a 65. huge difference. 65. <laughs> 60s is still the same thing. Yeah. Well, 60s was when the hippie era was happening, right? It would have had a whole different vibe. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Marty Noxon loves ghost stories. She said that when she wrote this, she was like, I know my mom will cry when she sees it. <laughs> said that prior to working on the series, she had written several times about ghosts, which for her are figurative expressions of the need for repentance and second chances. She drew on her own family background saying, I realized that I was constantly telling the story of my family and fears, which I think is why this episode is so hard hitting because you have Marty over there, like literally pouring her own fears onto paper, which, I mean, those make for the best episodes. Um, Cynthia Bergstrom, the the costume designer. She talks about how she was actually, not literally, but she was haunted by the character of Jenny Callender because she kept accidentally shopping for her character when she was out and then realized that Jenny was not there anymore. Aww. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Isn't that kind of sad? I think that's the saddest fact you've had. <laughs> 
Um, from the Watcher's Guide, so although the show has dealt with many disturbing subjects up until now, this was the first one that prompted a public service announcement. Following the end of the final act, Sarah Michelle Gellar did a voiceover on the dangers of teen suicide and giving information on the American Association of Suicide Prevention, which makes a lot of sense. I think this episode, you kind of forget that James actually does commit suicide you know, at the end because there's so much other stuff going on and because we don't actually see it like Buffy gets stopped and stuff, but that's a very real thing. And I think that it's really good that they put that on there. Well, I actually, I forgot that James even does that in the episode um, because I just haven't seen this episode in a while. And I, I think you're right, Sarah, there's so much going on that you kind of get, you forget. And then when Sarah Michelle Gellar or Buffy, you know, is about to like do it I was like reminded I was like wow that's really sad that's really heavy like I kind of forgot that you know that was even in there so I'm glad that they did that in the episode yeah that was really necessary yeah and I think even like the the scene itself um where you see Sarah Michelle Gellar looking in the mirror and she's representing like James Mm -hmm. like I just know from my personal experience where I suffered from um attempted suicide multiple times Mm -hmm. and that feeling of numbness, they truly put it, like, there, that like, you can feel it from Sarah. Like, she's just looking right there, and she's just like, I feel nothing. I just I just can't. And that's a lot of the times where, like, like I could definitely see why they would need to put that there, because that alone is that exact feeling that mm-hmm. someone who is wanting to commit suicide feels and thinks and has, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, a lot of this episode – when you see Buffy kind of walking down the halls and stuff, it's a lot of times a dreamlike state. And I think it's supposed to showcase how numb Buffy actually is throughout the episode in the fact that she's just, we've been watching her, and we'll kind of get to this later, but we've been watching her for episodes now, really wrestling with this kind of like guilt Guilt. and this self-loathing and this anger and all this stuff. And she's gotten to the point, like she was sick last episode and killed by death, you know? Mm -hmm. She got to the point where she's finally just like, she's been in so much pain that she's just numbing herself. And so I think like that is uh, very representative of someone that's gone through so much pain to where they just, they choose not to feel anymore. Um, This episode is how you do a Monster of the Week episode. The Monster of the Week moves the plot forward, but the main character also grows, which also moves the plot forward. Most everything I read and every person I talked to says that this episode is underrated and that they didn't like it or appreciate it the first time they saw it and thought it was too melodramatic. And then they would go back the second time and be like, oh my gosh. There are so many deeper themes that I missed simply because I just thought it was, you know, a stupid ghost episode. I was reading reviews of the episode and a reviewer said this and I thought it was really well done. They said, if season two was a play, surprise slash innocence would be act one, passion would be act two, I only have eyes for you would be act three, and the finale would be the final act. Because they kind of deal – they deal specifically with Buffy. Um, And I mean, every episode has little bits of Buffy in there, but really like delves into Buffy's character growth and kind of is pushing her along through the season and getting her to where she needs to be by the end of it. I actually noted that in this episode that like this episode, you know, is interesting and it's amazing, but it really does a lot for Buffy's character Mm -hmm. and it really shows you a lot of where she is mentally and what she's thinking, what she's processing and 
Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it more when there's things that come up, but, um, there's a few times where she's talking and she's really showing, you know, without actually saying it, but she's really showing how she's feeling. And Sarah Michelle Geller, so much of this episode, like, is shown how Buffy's feeling, not necessarily said. And you just see it on her face. And I, I don't know. You know how you go through different things at different times in your life? And I, like, I'm going through a time in my life where I just really relate with a lot of what Buffy's going through. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, this episode hits way different when you're going through some stuff. <laughs> All right, so the episode's theme is forgiveness. Not just forgiveness, though, it is about letting go. In the episode, Giles lets go of Jenny. James lets go of Grace after refusing to let her go. Buffy lets go of her guilt and anger. And I thought that was a really good theme, especially because the episode before we talked about this briefly, but killed by death, Buffy literally gets physically ill because she's holding in all her emotions. And I thought that that was like a really good theme for an episode right before finally just like, okay, I'm coming to a place of acceptance and I'm kind of just, you know, choosing to move forward. Also, uh, Spike lets go of his wheelchair. (laughs) 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 Oh, yes, yes. How could I have forgotten? Um, Buffy feels it's her fault that Angel turned into a monster, even though it's not. She feels she made a hasty decision in a moment of blind passion and can't forgive herself. She thinks she deserves to be punished for her actions, which is really sad because it's not at all, not at all what happens. And I think it speaks a lot to Buffy's character that she puts so much on herself too. Yep. And then, you know, the last or the two episodes ago, Xander does some crappy things and doesn't feel any remorse. And they're like, let's put all the guilt on Buffy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I know. Gosh. Poor girl really goes through it. But I think that also points out like Buffy's moral like sensibility in like obviously the difference between Xander and, you know, like mm-hmm. he's, yeah. Um, but like Buffy <laughs> is going to hold the weight of the world on her shoulders, literally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, emotionally, we're everything she does, rather that's saving the world, yeah. rather that's being, you know, a good daughter, a good girlfriend, you know, a good friend. Like she has a high standard for herself that she feels that she needs to uphold too. And not that anybody else is putting that bar for her, but like automatically holding herself to that. And if she's not meeting it for herself, right. You know, it's going to be a lot harder on her. It's a lot of self-condemnation. I also thought it was really interesting that there's a lot of parallels between Buffy and Giles in this episode. Um, You get to see Giles dealing with Jenny's death. Um, I think he went through denial and anger and passion. And it kind of feels like he went through the last three stages in this episode. He goes through bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Finally, I think that both him and Buffy are wrestling with loss and grief. Both are called on by the spirit, which is interesting because there was something in James that saw pain in Giles. I, yes, I didn't even realize that until this episode too. Yeah. And I, but I think it's interesting that James stops calling out to Giles because Giles accepts earlier on than Buffy does. He recognizes what Buffy doesn't get till the end of the episode is that you have to forgive yourself. You have to move forward. You can't hold on to pain and bitterness and grief and all that stuff. And he gets that, like that moment with Willow when he says, no, this isn't Jenny. That's him kind of letting Jenny go versus Buffy holds on to that until the end of the episode. But I I love that. I love that there's a reason the spirit was trying to call into Giles. Like, ah, I thought that was so good. I didn't think about that, but I definitely saw the correlations of, like, you can see it when Giles, then they're trying to reason with Giles, like, who's this ghost? And he's like, it's Jenny. I'm right. You're wrong. No, you're not going to, like, 
all of that. And then a few scenes later, Buffy's doing the same thing. She's just like attacking with her emotions and she's mm-hmm. not going to listen to any reason. It's it's what she is feeling and you could definitely see it and feel it. Yep. All right. Um, so Joss Whedon says, this is a sort of ghost story. It replays the death of one of them because they're trying to make it right. The twist being that in the end, David is possessed by the spirit of the woman and Buffy is possessed by the spirit of the man. That was a really interesting exercise for them and for us to watch. Seeing David open himself up to playing this very emotional female role and doing it excellently without being silly, without overdoing it, and without shying away from it as a lot of you know male action stars might was an extraordinary thing. Every show we come up with deals with some emotion, some emotional arc that we then balloon into a sort of horror story. This episode is really about forgiveness. It's about Buffy who thinks she can't forgive Angel for what he's done, but in reality can't forgive herself. And she sort of learns that she's done something others have done, that she can be forgiven, that she can move on. There's a redemption out there for her. All right. Finally, jumping into the episode. So we have this really cool song. It's uh, Charged by Splendid. The The singer is Angie Hart, and she actually appears in Firefly in the episode Heart of Gold, and she sings the song Amazing Grace. I don't know if any of you guys have seen Firefly, but in case you haven't, I, I need to see Firefly, actually. I haven't actually seen it. I'm a horrible um, Whedon fan. Uh, something Sarah has seen. <laughs> I haven't seen it either. I can't even sit here and act like that's a surprise. Have you I'm seen like, it, yeah. Leah? Sarah. Have you seen it? Yeah, of course. No, you haven't. You <laughs> little <hasn't>. liar. <laughs> what the heck? I'm not like a diehard fan. I don't know. I just, Firefly never stuck for me, really. Well, the concept. dedicated as I am. You know what? Shush. Glass houses. <laughs> or was it like, yeah, glass houses. <laughs> Dollhouse. I, I watched the first two episodes of Dollhouse and I liked it. I just. I forgot to keep watching. (laughs) It was good, though. Oh, no. So this is one long, drawn-out shot, and I can't even imagine how many times they would have had to redo this because it starts off with a close-up of the singer and the band, and then it kind of backs out and pans past Cordelia and Xander dancing And then you go to Willow looking up at the balcony at Buffy, who, by the way, is looking fabulous in gold pleather pants and a black V-neck spaghetti strap. All her outfits have just been killing it recently. I know. I'm like, I could never wear gold leather pants. That would be disgusting. She looks great. Also, I think this is the first time we've seen the balcony since, like, the first episode in the first season. I, like, forget that the bronze has an upper part. It's definitely been a while. I think it's the harvest we definitely saw it there too. I think it's probably the first time since season two. I don't know. But yeah, it's been a while. Um, Ben with the super flashy purple shirt comes up. (laughs) Um, And they talk about how they had Algebra 2 the year before, but this dude does not like like he's in high school at all. I was like, wow, what are they feeding them in Sunnydale? Um, He asks Buffy, well, wants Buffy to ask him to the Sadie Hawkins dance at school. He seems super sweet. And when she kind of tells him no and rejects him, he takes it really well and is like, oh, okay, I can tell. And he like tries to back away without making her feel guilty. And I was like, Xander, this is how you take a rejection. Are you taking notes, dude? Please. (laughs) But also just Buffy talking how she was like, oh, you know, I'm not going to date ever again actually which is just like one it's so funny because i feel like that's how so many feel so many people feel after they go through a breakup i know that's how definitely i felt Mm -hmm. i was like 
I don't even want to look at another man ever in my life. But I was like, I'm done. Um, but it's also just so funny that she's like dead serious. Like this guy's kind of like, oh, ha. And she's like, no, I'm serious. I don't want to date ever again. And you're kind of like, you know what, Buffy? We don't blame you. I wouldn't yeah. either if I went through what you went through. Well, that's, she also goes into detail about it when she's talking with Willow. Sorry if I'm jumping. jumping no, you're face. fine. <laughs> like, Go ahead. Go ahead. But, you know, she's just like the last, you know, impulsive decision that I'm going to make is my choice of dentures. <laughs> like, you know, going in like she's just like, no, no, no. Yeah. I think it was interesting that she's not saying no to a date with him because she's not necessarily not ready to date, which I mean, she's not, but that's not the reason. The reason she's going is she's still punishing herself. And I think there's also a part of her that doesn't want to hurt him. I think she's thinking, oh my gosh, any guy that gets involved with me, like I'm going to hurt them. And it's just sad to see Buffy in this cycle of pain. Um, yeah, so then this conversation with Willow, she's like, I'm going to go stop by the library and then go home to sleep. Willow, you've been doing that a lot lately. You're kind of been all work and no play Buffy. You came, you saw, you rejected. I love Willow. Don't get me wrong. I love her <laughs> and I think that she has the best of intentions. However, in this scene, she kind of makes me a little upset simply because, I mean, this is me reading into it, but she seems very pushy. I'm very like, I'll go date, go do all these things, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, get over it. Allow Buffy. Yeah. I see season one Buffy in Willow right now. Like, see the parallel of like how Buffy was like, seize the moment. And that's exactly what Willow is doing is seize the moment. Have fun. Yes. And, and like I said, I don't, I don't think that she's doing it mean or anything like that. I think it's just like, especially when you take into consideration the kind of pain and just like trauma. Buffy has gone through. I think it's a little insensitive to just be like, well, just go date a guy. Just go try. When it's like, uh, the last guy she dated literally turned into a vampire, like lost his soul and is out there killing people. Like allow her time to heal, allow her time to mourn on her own time. But also, like, no one else has to carry the burden other than herself. It's not like you and your partner go through something that's awful that they both caused in the situation. It's not like Angel, as a supportive boyfriend, can they can both work through whatever it is that they did in an actual real-life situation. But it's like Angel's literally a different person who does not give a crap and wants to kill her. And she has to deal with it, causing – like, having all this guilt on her knowing that she turned her boyfriend into what he is. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point because something that I was thinking about is I think the way Willow copes – with stuff is she keeps herself busy and she like throws herself into projects and or does research or does all this stuff because we're watching this episode the way that Willow's coping with Jenny Callender's death is she's digging into her files she's you know learning about you know her her paganism and all that witchcraft and stuff she's like she throws herself into teaching and to doing those hobbies. And you've seen that in previous episodes where as soon as she found out vampires were real to kind of cope with that, oh my gosh, trauma, she's like, all right, well, let's let's research her. I want to find out everything I know about them. And so I think there's this sense of like, um, if I understand it, it will help me work through the emotions that I'm feeling. And so I think this is kind of what Willow's trying to tell Buffy is like, hey, like, just jump back into dating or like keep yourself busy to kind of occupy yourself because that's what Willow would do. And so I don't know that she's – she yeah, she might be – you can be insensitive when you're still trying to be helpful. And I think that's what she might be doing is she's thinking that's helpful because that's what works for her. 
you know? And it could be like she did help a ton in this episode by helping figure out what to do when it came to James. And Absolutely. so when you, when you find your own like way of helping someone else when they don't have to carry certain burdens on their own, then she's super helpful. But it's like mm-hmm. when you're trying to correct them by how they're going through their process and tell them to do things to cope in certain ways that are unhealthy, how you cope, that's when you like, okay, let this person, if she doesn't want to date, she doesn't have to date. Like you don't have yes. to like get over things like by jumping into the next thing. If she's feeling ca- cautious, like allow her to go through that and explore that and figure out a healthy way as we all know Buffy will. Like Buffy's not a reckless person. Buffy's not somebody who doesn't think through things. She's somebody who has to process things, figure out a way for her and she'll always come back. Yeah, I agree with Tabby. I, I just think that one of the most damaging things you can do to a person when they're going through something really hard and just very emotional is trying to tell them how they feel that and how they process it because it kind of almost invalidates their own experience and their own feelings. It sounds like you're trying to correct them rather than listen or even invalidates the past relationship, how deep it was. I think Willow's forgetting that like this wasn't just like a fling. This was a man that she was like absolutely like in love with and Willow knew this. I mean, Buffy was talking about a future with him, you know? So I think that Willow's forgetting that in this instance. Again, not a, being a bad friend. I think that comes with maturity to recognizing that like how to be helpful, how to listen versus just sitting there and be like, well, like get over it, you know? But yeah, that's interesting. And she does say we get a like a nice little summary of the season. Okay, the angel thing went badly, but that's not your fault. And anyways, love isn't always like that. Love can be nice, which is a good reminder. But again, it's also like, okay, Willow, easy for you to say while you're going through like all the good stuff right now. And Buffy knows this. She's like, she obviously had sex with him. She knows love can be nice. You know, like there are good things about this. And so, yeah, I think that is a little... I think it is a little insensitive, but yeah, it's it's like they had to kind of write that in there so that, you know, first time viewer, you can be like, okay, this is where we're at in the season. Um, also, I want to point out that this is, I thought this was really cool. The Sadie Hawkins dance is kind of a clue for the end of the episode. So the idea with Sadie Hawkins is it's customary for guys to ask girls, but the roles are reversed mm-hmm. in that girls ask the guys, giving a bit of foreshadowing that the roles will be reversed later on the episode, which I thought was really but cool. But also, like there are the roles reversed gender-wise is like is like mentioned several different times in different ways in this episode. You find out with Sadie Hawkins, the girls ask the guys, and then the pedophile teacher is the female, not the male. <laughs> Sorry, but that's yes. what it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm just go gonna, ahead. You know, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> You're fine. But like normally it's like a male, right? And then at the end, it's like you think that Buffy is going to play the role of the teacher mm-hmm. when she's actually James in that situation because he relates to her. Which, yeah. like I know that, you know, she was murdered and all that and like, ah, that sucks for her. But like also, why does no one react when they're like, oh yeah, this teacher and this student were in a romantic relationship and everyone's like, Oh, that student sucks for killing her. But then you're also like, yeah, but that teacher was also like, like not supposed to be dating him. Like that was but her she, student. In her in her defense, she was trying to break it off. Yeah, she was. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Was, but she also started it. Like, well, we know, don't know that she started it. He could have hit onto her. She gave she gave him a book about how the teacher and the student were in love. 
How yeah, is that but not that doesn't. It? Well, Leah, we well, didn't see context. the. Yeah, that's context. Yeah. We didn't see the beginning of the relationship. They could have. Yeah. It could have easily been the other way around. Either but way, even yes. Still, he's a minor. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah no, no one's saying going it's okay. into it is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going in. There's a strong possibility he's a senior, he's 18, which means he's not a minor, but it's still an abuse of power and a position sure. over him. Um, and I think – I don't think the episode is trying to tell us at all that that is a good relationship. I don't think they yeah. are. When you also think about the dialogue that happens that when they're – when James and Grace are possessing people, like – this is something that's not supposed to happen. Like we can't, you can't have a normal life. You know, these are things like they have to give a relationship that would correlate for Buffy and Angel. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. They had to do something Mm -hmm. that had a little bit of a reason why they couldn't be together to mirror and match Buffy and Angel's relationship. Again, it's the whole, like we've talked about before, you know, the metaphor versus what's actually happening in in the episode you know we we all agree that that's not healthy not okay but pedophiles are not a fan we're not fans of pedophiles (laughs) we are not advocating pedophilia i feel like we went through this at teacher's pet and here we are all over again (laughs) all right so back at school two teens are fighting each other this whole this whole episode plays out like a poem. It's just beautiful because you have multiple times four different couples that repeat the phrase, but each one kind of brings their own way to it, like their own relationship mm-hmm. in a way, like the way that they talk and stuff. It like it's amazing like we watch it four separate times, but it it's poetic each time it happens and it's different and it's fresh. It's just really really or, well or done. Even- a lot of the the couples will say like the same kind of like dialogue and then when Buffy and Angel go, it's like dialogue that pertains to like Buffy, what Buffy and Angel are like actually going through. And yeah. so I love how they kind of kept that from us until that last part because I just was like, oh, like this is just – I mean, okay, we'll, we'll talk about it because I don't want to keep saying stuff yeah. that I'm like, I need to save that for later. But yeah, we'll, I love, we'll get to I love it. that they did that. So the two teens are fighting – Come back here. We're not finished. You don't care anymore. Is that it? I love that they just kind of show the end of the dialogue to make you think one thing and not realize what it actually is. Um, So Buffy walks in, sees the dude pointing the gun at the girl, intercepts the man before the gun goes off. That was like really intense. She like grabs his arm, points it up, digs her elbow into his stomach, then flips him. It was like – it was really cool. (laughs) I thought when I saw that scene for the first time, I thought she like broke his like forearm and I was like, oh my gosh, are they really going to show that off? <laughs> <laughs> she might have. I also think it's kind of cool that it mirrors Giles also doing almost the same thing. Like he tackles the other shooter, once again, trying to show the correlation between Buffy and Giles. Um, You just went OJ on your girlfriend. Haha. <laughs> Can we tell when this was written? The couple are confused, said they don't know why they were fighting. The gun disappears. Hey, it's the principal's office. We haven't seen Snyder since what's my line? Like, where have you Snyder. been, man? <laughs> in his uh, big ears. <laughs> I know. Every time he comes in, I'm like, oh, comic relief. <laughs> <laughs> Leah's like favorite character this, this season. He did. He had a lot of screen time. I just love him. Like, he's just so pessimistic all the time. Like, this man does not have a ray of sunshine in his life, and it is just so funny to me. I mean, with how short he is, I would be bad, too. (laughs) (laughs) 
like, well, with the the phone call he has with someone on the phone, he's like, oh, pathetic, no life vegan. I was like, who wrote this? <laughs> I know. He's just so, like, he's so angry at everyone. Like, even the way he's, like, talking to Buffy, like, sh- she's like, this isn't my fault. Like, you should be thanking me. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm going to keep digging until I find out that it is your fault. Like, this man has no ounce of, like, believing the best. He's always just like, no, it's your fault. Well, I mean, part of me questions, like, I don't know, maybe this is probably a spoiler and I shouldn't say, but... If it is, we'll cut it out later. It's all good. Okay, I was going to say, maybe he knows she's the Slayer and that's why he's out for her. (sighs) Yeah, no, that's a good point, especially with what we find out in this episode where he talks about they're on a hellmouth, the mayor and all that stuff. You're like, whoa, does he, is that why he's out to get her? Mm -hmm. Is it because he knows she's the Slayer? Yeah, but right. if he did know that she was a slayer, wouldn't you think he'd want to help her, considering he wants the stuff about the Hellmouth to kind of stay quiet? But is he really on Buffy's side? Like, Clearly not. Or is he on the mayor's side? Buffy is kind of the monkey wrench in his plans if he's trying to keep everything hush-hush. Because Buffy, like, she doesn't do a great job of keeping her identity a secret and keeping it to herself. Like, things are constantly happening around her. Um, And I think at the end of the day, I think Snyder just likes control. And so Buffy is not something he can control. And so he doesn't like that, regardless of whether she's helping him or not, you know? Snyder's mad that he's not the Slayer. Yeah, he is. He's like, dang it, why aren't guys Slayers? (laughs) Uh, He's like, he'd be the type of guy that'd be like, guys are way more powerful than girls. Anyways, it's completely unrealistic that a girl would even be a Slayer. He's like all mad about it. (laughs) He thought he was going to be chosen and then one day he realized it wasn't going to (laughs) happen. He got rejected from the Watchers Council. Oh, oh yeah, that's what it is. I can't even. story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> that's it leah you you unpacked all of snyder right there we don't even need a backstory for him i love how he's all like i'm a truth seeker i have got a missing gun and two confused kids on my hands he suddenly thinks that he's like an fbi agent pieces of the puzzle and i'm going to look at all the pieces carefully and rationally and i'm going to keep looking until i know exactly how all this is your fault buzzer sounds mr snyder billy crandall's changed himself to the snack machine again <laughs> Okay, I've seen this episode a bajillion zillion times. This is one of those episodes. This is one of my favorites. And I picked up on so many small dialogue stuff in this episode that I have genuinely never, like, picked up for. And there are some hilarious one-liners that so many, like, characters I wouldn't think would give some funny one-liners. I just am so excited to talk about them. Especially that one. That one was so funny. Hey, oh man, my girl. Gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you stink of lies. <laughs> He's so dramatic. It's the best. Uh, I love how Bobby doesn't really take him seriously. She's just like, okay, I'll just sit here, I guess. Um, so then Snyder leaves the room to check on Billy Crandall. An old yearbook from 1955 mystically gets pulled out, drops on the floor. Buffy doesn't read it, puts it back. So computer class, this, there are so many beautiful moments between Willow and Giles this episode. I just really appreciate how sweet their relationship is. But I also question why a student is subbing for a class. Okay, wait a like, I thought the same thing. <laughs> no, because I mean, like, Willow was clearly doing a good job. I understand why someone like Giles would trust her to lead a class. But why would someone like Principal Snyder? He doesn't like, want to pay a sub. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, more money. Well, just my fair, theory is that's that all the teachers illegal. keep dying. Yes. True. Unless it's like one period. 
Yeah. Well, and also, okay, students, again, easier to control. I think Snyder's all about control. Mm. Student is easier to control, less money, don't have to worry about another teacher dying, don't have to worry about another teacher that maybe won't keep their secret, you know? And this doesn't seem to be very long after Jenny's death, so maybe it's just temporary until they get someone in, you know? Plus all the five hours of lesson planning that Willow does. I mean, she's (laughs) clearly putting in the work, man. She is! (laughs) Even though Jenny has, like, um, already has stuff on her computer from this episode, she has, like, all these lesson plans. That doesn't matter. Willow's still going to put five hours in. Yeah, it's true. She will. Little overachiever over here, trying to, you know, emotionally cope with everything that's going on in her life. Though Giles stops in to see if she needs help, and Willow mentions that Jenny left the detailed lesson plans on her computer, says she found a bunch of files on paganism and magic. And then she gives Giles the rose quartz that has healing power, says, I thought she'd want you to have it. And I think this is yet another moment where Giles is healing a little bits at a time. He's not obviously not there at all, but I think that it's this is helping him. And their um, theme plays. Yeah, remembering so Jenny. Sweet. It's beautiful. It plays every time in this episode that either like Giles or Buffy is thinking about Jenny or they something is happening that like you're kind of supposed to like trick your mind into thinking about Jenny. Yeah, it's really I love that theme song. Like Chris Huffbeck is just phenomenal when it comes to lay motifs. I know. Um and Giles is very Sarah touched. was a music major if you can't tell. <laughs> I know. Who would say motifs? Oh, it's really good at motifs. No, she said lay motifs. <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> I wasn't music major. <laughs> Rude. Don't make fun of me. Um, Giles is very touched. And I also think this is very clever to show that, hey, guess what? The hard drive wasn't destroyed, even though the computer monitor was, but the tower wasn't. So Angel's curse is still there. Like, not only is Angel's curse on that thumb drive... It's, or not thumb drive, floppy disk. Floppy disk. Floppy disk. Thank you. Excuse me. Pardon my 2000s speak. Um, and that floppy disk, but it's also still technically on the hard drive. So now like as viewers, we're like, come on, somebody find it. Come on. I feel like it's just like a slap in the face from the writers. Like, yeah, it's there. We're not going to address it. It's there. Yeah. And we're literally, they keep, they keep shooting scenes right at that desk too, where you're like, maybe they'll find it now. You know, that's what every new viewer is thinking when they're watching this. They're like, this is the episode. I know it. Like, they're going to just know. <laughs> yeah. So in history class, Buffy's snoozing as per usual. I love how they just keep showing that it's history class. It cracks me up because we know Buffy's not great at that. Um, They're learning about the New Deal. Guy totally looks like a history teacher with a sweater vest. Um, Buffy suddenly has a vision, which I thought this was interesting. This is the first vision that's from the past, and it's not something that's foreshadowing of the future. Well, no. What about out of sight, out of mind? Or out of mind, out of sight? We t- Buffy's technically not not seeing those visions. Oh, those are literally those just were just us. okay. Mm-hmm. That was us. Okay, yeah, that was just us. But excellent memory, good job. Uh, yeah. So it's but it's clearly the fifties based upon that one girl who's like, oh, he's so dreamy. I was like, okay, barf. That was very cheesily uh, delivered. Well, and the outfits, <laughs> of course, the outfits. <laughs> We're like only looking at the dial, like what year could it be? Hmm. <laughs> Dreamy, 1955. She was saying that like it's clearly the 50s because of the dialogue. I was like, well, it's clearly the 50s because of those outfits. I was being sarcastic, but yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Burn me at the sink then. Goodness gracious. 
Regardless, also, it's both in your face that it's who, 50s. Who calls someone dreamy nowadays, too? That's what would get me. I'm not going to. Maybe I, like I do. Boy, okay, Leah. You're dreamy, Leah. Uh, yeah, what the heck? That's that's a nice compliment. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay, so it is 1955. The teacher asks James if he likes the Hemingway book she gave him. He says, I liked it. It's honest. Okay, so the book is Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. It's about a World War I soldier who falls in love with an older army nurse, and she eventually dies, and he blames himself for it. And it's kind of based off of Hemingway's own experiences. So... Of course, they would, you know, everything has meaning in this episode, in every in this show, really. And so I love, like, looking into little details like that. Okay, what book did he give her? And I mean, obviously, it means something as, like, they're talking with their eyes and with their body language and stuff. There's – it's very clear that they have a relationship going on. Um, back in the present day, the prof is writing something about child labor on the board. But what he actually writes is, don't walk away from me, bitch, which is the exact same thing that the guy – screamed at the girl at the very beginning. I was going to say, I just realized when you said that this is history class, like wasn't history the class that Angel was tutoring her in? Yes. Yep. And Darla. Yeah. Yeah. Air quotes Darla. It's it's the class that Buffy's always talking about how she doesn't understand. Yeah. yeah, Needs a tutor with. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to talk a little bit about the actors because not only is, you know, our main cast phenomenal in this episode, but we have several other couples who do a great job and carry their own. So Grace, um, the teacher, is played by Meredith Salinger. She starred in The Journey of Natty Gann opposite John Cusack, A Night in Life of Jimmy Reardon with River Phoenix and Matthew Perry, of all people. She's been on many TV shows such as Daredevil, 24, and has done voiceover work for My Little Pony and Secret Life of Pets 2, amongst other stuff. She's married to comedian Patton Oswalt, who you guys probably know best as the voice of Remy for Ratatouille. Isn't that cool? Hmm. And both her and her husband have a podcast. I do not remember what the name is. So if you guys ever want to look it up and find out what you know Grace is doing today, you can look that up. Um, James is played by Christopher Gorham, and he's best known for Two Broke Girls, Covert Affairs, Insatiable, and Ugly Betty, and he voiced The Flash in the DC animated movies. So, I don't a little bit of fun fact trivia. I always kind of like looking up and seeing where the actors are and what they've been doing and stuff. All right. So, um there's a deleted scene that happens in this episode. I'm not 100% sure where, but I think it's somewhere in these um this next few scenes and I really wish it had been kept in cuz it's pretty great. So, Cordelia says, "Okay, so what's up with Buffy?" Xander says, "How many times do we have to go over this nothing's up with Buffy? We're just good friends." Cordelia, "No, I mean what's up with Buffy? Like is she okay?" Xander, "Sorry, I'm not used to you addressing subjects not directly re- related to you. She's fine, I guess. Why? Cordelia, she only blew off Ben Strally, the most eligible hunk in town. He's totally rad and his father owns a department store. I mean, he's the guy I'd be going out with if I wasn't so obviously brain damaged. No offense. Xander, oh no, why would I be offended? (laughs) Cordelia, anyway, Ben told Lynette, who told Carrie, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that quality Buffy- of mercy is not Cordelia. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Anyway, Ben told Lynette, who told Charity, that Buffy wouldn't even give him the time of day. Xander, good for her. She's providing much needed life experience for the rejection deprived. Cordelia, 
the guilt thing's just getting a little old, you know. Everybody's told her what happened to Angel isn't her fault. Xander, yeah, everybody except the one guy she actually needs to hear it from. Dang, Mm. I wish they left that in, like, Xander actually standing up for Buffy. That's pretty insightful for Xander. And it's also insightful of Cordelia to notice that something is going on with Buffy. And I think it lends a little bit of insight into both of those characters. And yeah, I mean, I understand they can't keep everything in. My guess is that was probably like they were planning on having that squeezed in while Xander and Cordelia are dancing or something like that. But yeah, Mm. I thought that was insightful. Mm. I kind of wish like the one part that I really wish was in the episode um, was the last thing you said, only because we end up getting that at the end of the episode. So if they had mentioned it, then it would have made just such a sweet full circle, even though it wasn't actually Angel. It was very cathartic for Buffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think my guess is they they cut it out because they're like, audiences can kind of see where we're going and understand that Buffy needs to hear that from Angel. We don't need a character actually physically saying it, you know? Mm-hmm. So in the hallway, gosh, Buffy is just killing it with her looks. She's got that brown tank dress with the slit, belt, the tan boots. I mean, even her hair. And Xander's shirt is actually decent. It doesn't hurt my eyes. Like, I know. Both just looking really blind good. me. Something weird is going on. Xander thinks the Hellmouth is just acting up, opens his locker, and an arm yanks him into it until Buffy pulls him out. That okay. So do you guys? I, you guys probably don't remember the first time you watched this, but like, I feel like that was probably the biggest jump scare they've had on the show yet because you like legitimately don't expect that to happen. I think this whole episode was full of a lot of jump scares. True, <laughs> everything zombie James. Like again, I just feel like tra- traumatized me when I was younger. <laughs> Are you okay, Destiny? <laughs> I, I know it's the third time you mentioned it. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, do you it traumatized help? me clearly. <laughs> She's like, let's talk about this episode. And somewhere they're like, oh, okay. Maybe this will get me over my fear of the episode. <laughs> oh my gosh. Closure, guys. Closure. We'll help we'll help you find acceptance and peace. Move on. Let go of the ghost of James. <laughs> Buffy and Xander go into the library. Xander's shirt is like shredded on one side. Willow's like, oh, did Cordelia win another round in the broom closet? <laughs> That was great. Xander, I'll have you know, I was accosted by some sort of locker monster. Giles immediately, Loch Ness monster? Loch Ness monster? (laughs) He's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. The whole mouth has everything. (laughs) They explain what's going on, Giles. Ooh, sounds like a paranormal phenomena. Willow's like, "Uh, that's pretty cool. There's a ghost. Like Giles and Willow geeking out. And Xander's like, no, this was no wimpy chain rattler. This was, I'm dead as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Giles says the ghost doesn't know what it wants, that many times the spirit is plagued by all manner of worldly troubles. Being dead, it has no way to make its peace, so it lashes out, growing ever more confused, ever more angry. The only way to stop it is to help it work out whatever unresolved issues that keep it there and help them resolve it. Giles says they need to find out who the spirit was. Um... So then it's night again at the school. We see the janitor, George, mopping again, and teacher, Miss Frank, finishes up and starts to leave. And it's very clever how, like, they showed the janitor during the first fight to show that, like, 
clearly it's a possession. It's not him. Like him and the Miss Frank don't know each other. They're completely strangers. Um, They're possessed again. They go through the same dialogue as before, except this time we actually hear the beginning. You can't make me disappear when you say it's over. There's no way we can be together. No way people will ever understand except it. Um, And it goes on. We'll read the full thing at the end. Um, So as they argue – Uh, Giles is sitting in his office and he hears their voices yelling at each other. And as he's taking his dear sweet time walking towards the noise, he hears a woman whisper, I need you. Now, okay, question for you guys. The Again, the metaphor breaks down. The episode's not super clear whether Grace is – like her spirit is still around the school because they talk about how they – like James is obviously there. Do you guys think that Grace's spirit is still stuck in the school or do you think that – that's James speaking in a woman's voice trying to get Giles' attention? I think it's both because one, like you hear a woman's voice, which could be, you know, uh, James trying to get Giles' attention. But I think that, you know, I think it makes more sense if it was a girl – but also at the end of the episode when uh, Buffy and Angel are like kissing and you see like the mm-hmm. spirit, all that, I could swear I see two spirits mm-hmm. go up, not one. Mm-hmm. Well, because then who, you know, who's possessing the other half during these conversations? You know, I think it, I personally think it would be Grace. Um, and she might just be thinking like, hey, Giles might understand my perspective. So maybe I can possess him. Um I don't really think Jenny. Is no, Jenny's not there. Oh, really? I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think not. his grief is really allowing himself to think yeah. it. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, they aren't very clear, and they kind of like don't talk about whether there's two spirits. Even they just say James, but it's like clearly two people are being possessed, unless it's James just like reenacting out what happened um, using two people, which I don't. Yeah, it's it's kind of fuzzy. Like, how is James also able to bring in all the wasps? How he's able, you know, there's like it's kind of fuzzy, but at the same time, like that's not the point of the episode. Um, so yeah, I agree with you guys. I think that it's definitely. I think that Grace is still there, and I think Grace probably, um, maybe resonates with Giles too. You know, and that's why she's talking to him. I don't know. Um, the janitor is played by John Hawks. He's best known for Winter's Bone and The Sessions, was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe, has been in a lot of TV shows, been in X-Files, 24, Monk, Psych, Lost, and uh, yeah, just a ton more. The teacher is played by Miriam Flynn, and she played Littlefoot's grandmother in the Land Before Time franchise. Yeah, not the original movie, Um she replaced the original actress. Um, she also played Ma, the you in Babe. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's like all of our like no 90s movies. Yeah. <laughs> so he walks into the hallway looking for the voice, sees the janitor shoot the teacher, causing her to fall back over the banister. In horror, Frank runs back inside from the balcony. Giles tackles him, again mirroring Buffy. We see the gun slide to the floor and disappear, which that effect is so cool, how the gun just like slides and disappears. So Frank does not remember what happened, and Giles is like, you just killed a woman. 
Um, and then, okay, so then we have the mansion. I'm really excited about this. Okay, so the outside of this mansion is a really famous building in Los Angeles. It's called the Ennis House. It's by architect Frank Lloyd Wright and has been used in many films, commercials, music videos, photo shoots, and TV shows, including Blade Runner, Rush Hour, Predator 2, and Star Trek Next Generation. And the architectural, like the structure, it's built to look like an Aztec temple. Carrie Meyer, the production designer, um, he was the production designer at the beginning of the second season uh, and worked as the first season art director. He is in charge of heading the art department, designing all the sets and overseeing their construction and decoration. So fun fact, the title of art director actually came from the movie Gone with the Wind because it had such a huge impact on set work and became such an involved um, and then the set work person became such an involved person in the production that the producers felt they needed to give the person a more meaningful credit. And so that title was born, which I thought was kind of cool. So Carrie, when he begins designing for new episodes, he talks about how he gets the script from Joss and the writers. He takes careful note of the lists of new sets and locations that he and his team have to make real. He said his office is filled with sketches, blueprints, drafting table, color wheels, and assorted design paraphernalia, as well as sketches of various sets he's working on. He has a degree in architecture, but got experience working on set as a grip and a productions assistant on a few productions. When he was brought on as the production designer, he pitched his idea for the factory as Drew, Spike, and Angelus's lair. He wanted to prove to Joss that he could design the show, so the factory set was very important to him. He was inspired by an English library from the craftsman period. He says that his look for vampires is very much um, industrial and gritty. He enjoys like retaining that kind of flavor, yet layering it with more. He says, there is this bizarre kind of amalgamation of different styles and things. As long as it has a feel that is cool, it's not something that you set out with rule books. It just kind of evolves as time goes on. For instance, they designed a sort of underground motif for the vampires, starting with the underground church for the master, and then connected that to the rest of the world by sewer pipes. And then over time, it became established, oh, hey, there's an extensive sewer system beneath the town, and we can kind of work that into the like this vampires have like this underworld system that it kind of became this like industrial low ground cement dirt rust grime look that um we kind of attribute to vampires um but it's cool because him pitching that idea affected the show because then they started going oh hey we can start doing sewers and tunnels and like and it mm -hmm. kind of affected the look of the show and so from then they realized that they can use sewer systems as like a transporter, like kind of using Star Trek talk, but it allows them to move from one place to another, from one set to another without having to do big night shoots because you don't know whether it's night or day when you're underground in a sewer. And it also allows them to like be more ambiguous on how long it takes people to get places. So if it takes it shorter than what you would normally think, you'd be like, well, it's a shortcut because it's a tunnel. You know what I mean? So it kind of really changed the show all because he had this idea for sewers, which I think is really cool. So in a way, he kind of had a hand in writing some of the show, whether he meant to or not. So then I have a question. <laughs> Does that mean that they were sleeping in the sewers during the garden? Yeah, I mean – Possibly, because where else are they going to go? Exactly. 
That's hilarious that you mentioned the three of them in the sewer, like the, well, the two brothers from Bad Eggs. <laughs> yes, because then, like, you think, like, when Spike mentions it earlier, he's like, oh, yes, this is perfect for the glass and everything for the sunlight to kill us. He's like, I want to go back to my sewer. It was so cushy. <laughs> um, the Carrie says, shooting on location typically lasts 14 to 15 hours, but on a soundstage, it's 12 to 13, which I was like, that's still not great. I don't know. But I guess every hour like adds up. He says, when we're here on the lot, we don't have to do a whole night out. We can have a slightly later call and do the work inside on the stage and move out to our little graveyard and do half a night and then do the same thing the next night. So it's enabled us to keep all the night work in the show, but also not have to go out for a whole night. If you go out, you're going to go out at 6 p.m. sundown and be out until morning. And I wrote, his job sounds massively important, not just because of, you know, they need sets and stuff, but because... If he does his job well and he does it right, the actors get more sleep and they're able to have more time to themselves. And so it sounds like he was trying to find ways to make things more efficient. And they also save money too, you know? Um, And he says because of how much easier and more efficient this was, producers were more keen on creating sets. So he was able to build more sets for that year than most other shows, which I thought was really interesting. He says, on every other show I've done, we've built one or two permanent sets and then built like one and a half, maybe two sets per episode. With 22 episodes, you figure you can have maybe 25 or 30 sets. But on Buffy, he does three sets an episode. So on top of eight permanent sets they have on stage, they've built between 60 and 80 sets just for season two. That's That is so many sets. That's dedication. (laughs) Yeah. That's like all you're doing is just building sets. That's crazy. And the set designer, Caroline Quinn, she drew every single one of them, which is just crazy. Like it really is a team effort. And then apparently (laughs) Joss, like, you know, the jerk that he is, was driving out of the lot one day and passed by Carrie building sets and stopped his car and was like, "Um, by the way, we're working on burning the factory set down. Oh, and sucks. Carrie said, I loved What a slap in the yeah, face. <laughs> right. But I think, yeah, so I think Carrie says, I loved that set and hated to see it go. But you know Joss. I think Joss likes chaos. <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. He conceived a floor plan that would mesh with the space of the factory before he even thought about what the mansion would be like. So he was like, Okay, I have this set and I have to be able to fit it into these parameters. So then he went and he found a very gothic mansion, arches and fireplaces and things like that. And he said what really attracted him was the coloring of the photograph. It was a photo shoot. So there was a very pretty lady in a large dress standing in the middle of this decrepit place, which had been in an earthquake or something. He said the vampires have a different look from Sunnydale that's underground. And he's like, it was very industrial and dirty, and Joss hated it because it was very gothic. He wanted to stay away from gothic. He said maybe it could be Art Deco or something. Um, and so he decided to go with a more cement look, which if you look at this, the set, it's very – it's got a lot of cement and stuff. So that was kind of the background on the mansion, which I thought was pretty cool. All right. So inside the mansion, Angel is giving Drew the tour, taking her outside to the garden, which it's been pretty established that Drusilla really likes – digging and burying things and gardens and flowers and such. Uh, Spike, yeah, it's a paradise, big windows, lovely gardens. Spike is very salty in this scene. I thought that this scene was interesting because, like, I mean, one, we've seen how much 
angel and, you know, Spike really bite at it. But I really wanted to point out, like, the chemistry between the actors of Spike and Angel. Like, yes, we've talked about how Spike and Drusilla work to get good together and how Drusilla and, you know, Angel have good chemistry. But, like, I really forget, like, I forget that the actors don't hate each other. Like, because I, when I watch them, <sighs> when I watch them in scenes like this, I'm like, they hate each other. Like, I really, really, really believe it. And it just is like, I don't know. They are just so, the three of them together are so good at what they do. Every time they're all on screen, I believe everything they're saying. It seems like this where I wish Darla was alive. Yeah. So you could see all four of them in action. Like, like we don't get to see, like, today how Darla, Drew, you know, Spike mm-hmm. and Angel, like, in their true forms. Like, just, ah, I don't know. That would be a lovely mm-hmm. treat. Yeah. Or how, like, um, Angel would react around Drew if Darla was around. Yes. Who knows? Like, I have no idea what that would have looked mm-hmm. like. Or maybe he would be distracted by Darla because he would have Darla and then Drew would right. have Spike, you know. Right. And then they'd mm-hmm. be chaotic four. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. it would totally change the dynamic. That I know. That is a bummer, especially because I think that the characters are so vastly different from who they were, you know, a hundred or so years. So it would be a very different dynamic. Um, Angel or Angelus, if you don't like it, Spike, hit the stairs and go take a stand, man, which is a double meaning because Spike literally can't stand. But Angel's also telling him he has no backbone, which is ironic because what does Spike do at the end of the episode? He takes a stand, like (laughs) kicks his wheelchair and is like, all right, that's it. You want me to take a stand? I'll take a stand. to kick this wheelchair while I do it. <laughs> Could you imagine he breaks the wheelchair and he's like, dang it, now I have to go get a new one since they don't know. Or like he sprains his ankle or something because it like turned the wrong way. I don't know. Like- actually use it again. Yeah. <laughs> like, very logical Or they hear, they haven't even walked fully up the stairs yet. He's like, you'll see. Kicks it. They walk down the stairs like, what, what is going that? on? Like, ah! Spike fell over in his wheelchair. <laughs> waited. He's like, I fell. Sorry. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that'd be oh good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> They're like, Spike's just throwing a tantrum. He'd be like, Spike, you idiots. <laughs> How could you fall in a wheelchair? <laughs> Spike, well, our place was just fine till you went and had it burned down. (laughs) Uh, Angelus continues to insult Spike, and Spike's face is fully healed at this point, and he just is looking done with everything. Like this, he's been like getting increasingly, I think, angrier and angrier each episode, but this one, he's like seething. I noticed that the quieter Spike gets, the more angry he is. So in the library, Giles tells Buffy and Will about what happened with the janitor, said it was the same thing that happened with the two teens earlier on, that they couldn't find the gun. Giles is convinced that Jenny is the ghost. She died here under tragic circumstances, and now she's trapped. Willow brings up that Angel didn't shoot Jenny, but Giles insists that that's not significant, that it's the violence of the thing that matters, which this is not normally Giles. Giles is normally very methodical, as they point out later on, Um, and It's interesting, too, that throughout this scene, Giles is keeping himself busy while he's talking. His emotions are clearly heightened. He's not thinking clearly. Um, And then Buffy and Willow are very clear. They're like, we don't agree. Like, these fights are very specific. Like, it's the same thing happening over and over. There's two people each time. Willow's like, there's a pattern that doesn't fit with the way Jenny died. I really like how Willow's thinking. But it's also interesting, like the shot shows the three of them all standing together versus Giles, 
who's back. You can see him in his office behind the window. And I think it's supposed to kind of symbolize that he's isolating himself, that it's like the three of them versus him. And that he's like, no, 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 I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. And then he just goes and shuts himself away. Like he doesn't want to hear the truth. And I thought that was a really cool visual. And as sad as this scene is, I have to say it's so funny (laughs) when he's like, you know, I, I really, this is how like every teacher sounds like when you're a kid in high school. They're like, Oh, well, like, I really want you to explore and, like, you know, really think for yourself, but I'm right and you're wrong. Like, <laughs> and I know Giles isn't usually like this, but it's just, it's so funny. Well, and then no one wants, no one wants to say anything to him just because he's mourning. They're like, <laughs> They're like sure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll prove you wrong. Well, that it's like, you're also thinking he's too far gone. There's no sense of reasoning yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll let him find figure it out on his own. I, I just yeah. think it's sad. Like, Giles is, he's not ready to let go of Jenny yet. Um, and the idea of an angry Jenny ghost is better than never hearing from her ever again. It's so sad. So in the computer lab, Willow and Xander don't understand why Giles is acting the way he is. Buffy does. Buffy and Giles really understand each other well in this episode. He misses her. He can't think. Just a little more fallout from my love life. Willow checks for other shootings at the school, finds that a student killed a teacher on the night of the Sadie Hawkins dance. The rumor was they had an affair and she tried to break it off. After he killed her, he went into the music room and shot himself. Buffy connects the dots, realizes it's the same couple she dreamt about. So they pull up the yearbook, figure out it's Grace Newman and James Stanley. Buffy, he couldn't make her love him, so he killed her. Sicko. Willow mentions that he was smart. Both Xander and Buffy don't agree. He killed a person and killed himself. Pretty much two of the dumbest things you could do. Willow, I know, but don't you feel kind of bad for them? Um, And Xander's comment, the quality of mercy is not Buffy, is actually paraphrased from a quote from the Shakespeare play, The Merchant of Venice. Do you guys remember which episode they learned about The Merchant of Venice? Oh, it is. shoot. I it should is in know season this. one. Puppet show? Oh, oh, puppet show. Nope, puppet show. Nope, puppet nope. show. No? What? It's Don't not- they do that little, like... They do the scene! Yeah. They do, well, they do the scene of Merchant of Venice, but they don't talk, like, it's not the episode that they the teacher talks about it and they dissect it. Out of mind, out of sight. Out of mind, out of sight. I was gonna guess. Yeah. That. Do I get brownie yeah, points? Yeah, you get a gold star. Here you go. You can have Xander's gold star. <laughs> you mentioned it. You mentioned the episode twice. Yeah, you have. Too, well, no, you. and it's interesting because I, as I was watching this episode, it gives me out of mind, out of sight vibes. The loneliness, Buffy walking down the corridor, hearing the music playing, like the very dreamlike uh, state that she's in, the kind of like melancholy, sad. It feels very ghost-like, especially because Marcy like was invisible, so she felt like a ghost too. It, it's got a lot of out of mind, out of sight vibes. It's very interesting. The actual quote is, "The quality of mercy is not strained," but you know, of course, you know Xander wouldn't say that. Buffy, sure, I feel lousy for her. He's a murderer and should pay for it. Um, what do you guys think of Buffy in this scene? I think that. Buffy, I mean, it's obvious so many times when she's talking about James, she's thinking about Angelus slash Angel. Mm-hmm. And so I think that she's really, really, really trying hard to continue in her anger and be like, you know, Angelus is awful. He, he killed someone, blah, 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 and kind of like get rid of any type of love that she had for Angel. And I think that she's really just trying to be like, he's a murderer. He's awful. He deserves everything that's awful. And I think she's also preparing herself for the fact that she might have to kill him. 
And so she's really trying to, like, show herself, okay, like, murderers are bad, you know, blah, 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 and just trying to be hard about it. She's trying to make it black and white, whereas before she really hasn't been able to make it black and white with her relationship with Angel mm, or Angelus. That's a really good point. Yeah, I, I think this is very er- uncharacteristic of Buffy. I think Buffy is normally a lot more um, empathetic, and she kind of, like, really feels for each of the the victims in the situation. And in this one, she's kind of shutting herself down for the reasons that you guys both said. She's also over-identifying much. <laughs> Cordelia. Cordelia <said>. Yes. <laughs> Actually, this I just forgot to point this out earlier. Um, I think it's in this scene where um, Buffy's outfit's a little bit changed, where she's wearing the black jacket and her hair is slicked back. I don't know if her hair was always slicked back, but... It's kind of, I don't know if you guys notice it, but she looks a little bit more like Angel in some ways. Like, it feels like that kind of could be another, like, foreshadow that that's where her role is. It's going to be, like, Mm. the male. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is a really good insight. Yeah, totally. I I wrote, like, uh, Buffy can't forgive Angel for what he's done. And she's also disgusted by James. But she's also feeling the same emotions. He is the rage, the despair, the sadness, the loneliness. But I think on top of that, like obviously like she's feeling guilty. I think she's also – there's a part of her that's probably a little bit angry at Angel slash Angelus. She's not just feeling um, guilt. She's feeling rejection because she woke up with him gone. And so there's a part of her that feels like even though she knows this was an angel's fault, she still feels like he left her. And so there's a part of her that is wrestling with being angry at him, even though she knows it's not rational. Well, even if you look at like, like in earlier episodes when Jenny was alive and like her anger towards Jenny, she's like, did you know this was going to happen? Like, I think she might be resignating that same anger to Angel in the sense like, did you know this was going to happen? If so, why'd you let it happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes our emotions aren't always rational. Sometimes we just feel these things because like they're, I mean, they're there, we can't help it. And I think that this episode's so layered. There's so many different emotions that she's feeling and we like we resonate with all of them because at some point in our life, we felt at least one of those emotions, you know? Totally. Yeah. So we'll ask which ghost they're dealing with. Buffy thinks it's James because it's so violent. Um, Willow wants to use Jenny's pagan website and find out what he wants. Buffy, who cares what he wants? We need to shut him down before another innocent guy gets a, kills a nice girl and then blows his brains out in the music room wall. Um, again, and I mean, remember, guys, when we were talking about phases. We were trying to talk about, like, what the point of Cain was. And I think the point of Cain was he was supposed to plant the thought that because you didn't stop Angelus, every death that happens afterwards is your fault. And I think that he – kind of planted the seeds of guilt in her head that were kind of already starting to like maybe fester from innocence. Um, Mm. And I think that Buffy kind of took that to heart. And so that's why she's really wrestling with uh, understanding James. So in the cafeteria, the gang is having spaghetti. A girl screams. Suddenly, everyone realizes the noodles have turned into the snakes. It's chaos as students scream and run everywhere. Cordy gets bit on the face by a snake. Snyder strolls in with a coffee, <laughs> only to have students like flipping Enjoying over tables it. in front of him. 
Um, outside the school, animal control is taking the snakes out. A man with a badge and a suit is helped out of his car by Snyder, and they discuss how to cover it up. For the first time, we hear Snyder admit that he knows they are on a hell mouth. Sooner or later, people are going to figure that out. What the heck, guys? That is such a big reveal. Shoehorned into this, like, a massively emotional scene. Like, mm-hmm. it's... It's alluding that there's something going on with the mayor. It's Snyder knows, like, it, there's been no inclination so far that Snyder knows anything except for in school hard when he was talking about PCP. But also, like, if you if someone's going to be the principal of Sunnydale High School on top of a hellmouth, how would you be able to turn a blind eye with all the weird things that happen if you didn't know it happened and yeah. there wasn't any yeah. cahoots with I something? I think it almost makes right. me respect Snyder a little bit because it's like, okay, you're not an idiot. Like, you know what's going on, unlike. 90% of the people in Sunnydale. Like but if it's in, if he's in cahoots with what, like if he's trying to cover it up and he doesn't want to like take care of the issue, I don't know. I don't want to really He's a little snaky. Yeah. Snakey than the cafeteria snakes in my opinion. <laughs> well, like, yeah, it with his big ears. You're like, okay, so Snyder goes from a possibly just like a ditzy, stupid control freak to, oh my gosh, somebody who actually has an evil agenda. Like it kind of changes the way that you view him, which I think is really, really clever, but it's also still consistent with what he's done up until now. It makes you wonder if Principal Flutie knew Ooh. we were on a hell no, you know? Poor Principal Flutie. <laughs> I don't think Principal Flutie knew a thing about what was going on. <laughs> that poor man was on he, cloud nine. Like, he was like, I love everyone. Well. Everything's okay. <laughs> really? I feel like he was he was way too stressed about everything. I forget which episode it was. Something happened. He'd be like, what? There's this happening? And he was just like, he cared way too much about the small, minute things about high school. Well, that's what got him eaten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. He said they were being stupid high school boys, whereas Snyder would be like, there's something fishy going on. Where's Buffy? Like, he just would assume. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if if Snyder knows that she's a slayer, it makes sense why he's always, like, assuming that it's Buffy. Right. Yep. Also, the fact that Snyder actually looks nervous when the guy suggests that he goes and talks to the mayor is a first. I don't feel like we've actually seen Snyder scared of anything this is also like one of the first mentions we've ever heard of the mayor in this town like does that fool just like sleep on the job all the time <laughs> never seen the mayor but to be fair have you seen the mayor in your town leah no but uh there's also not vampires killing half of the population of my town True. okay, so okay. i don't fair. expect to see him every tuesday are you sure or are you just repressing like That's everybody true. else I, I could be i'm very rarely out yeah. at night anyways so Destiny's actually, you know, a vampire slayer, so that's why you don't n- ever see any vampires. That's what's going we on. We don't live in the same town, so oh my gosh. she's not uh, killing the ones in my town. She does have the steak tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> that is a gift. A huge tell. Okay, Buffy's house. Willow, remember the plan to contact the spirit and talk to it. Scrap that plan. Buffy, you were right. The time for touchy-feeling communication has passed. I've done some homework and found out the only solution is the final solution. Willow wants to do an exorcism, says the balcony is where the teacher died, and that's the hot spot. And it's interesting that once again, Willow's taking over from Giles when he's not quite himself, just like she did in the Dark Age. So the plan is that one person chants in the hot spot while the other three chant in other places around the school, forming a triangle to bind the bad spirit. Buffy, of course, decides to take the hot spot. I'm hoping he'll show. I truly am. Hmm. Who are you hoping's going to show, Buffy? My thinking is like 
what can she do? Like, he's a ghost or a poltergeist. Like, she can't really fight him. So what are you expecting is going to happen from this? Yeah, I think if they're binding the spirit, I feel like in every other show, it's always been if we bind it, then it has corporeal form. You know what I mean? I also think that a little bit like Giles, she's very clouded right now. Mm. And she's just kind of thinking like, oh, I can fight this. I can take this. I can beat this. I just want to fight this guy. I want to. She just wants to take everything out on Angel right now. That's true. And so it's like, no matter what she can do, she's just going to, I'm just going to fight. Yeah, that makes sense. They arrive at school and as soon as they enter, all the doors slam shut. This, I just love this part of the episode. It's so, it's creepy in like a fun way. It's just really fun to watch. Um, In the mansion, Drusilla is digging in the garden, says maybe she will dig herself a burrow and sleep in the ground. Spike reminds her of her dress. Very sweet, very boyfriend-like. And then Drew's like, well, I'll just sleep naked like the animals. And Angelus gets all creepy. Then Drew has a vision, which is really cool. We've talked about the correlations between Drusilla and Buffy. I think every time Drusilla has a vision, it's like Buffy has a vision. And in this episode, you know, Drew's like, there's a gate. It's opening. It's black. It wants her. It's time, Angel. She's ready for you now. She's dancing with death. Um, And I think it's cool that the black gate is not James, which we're led to believe it is James, but it's Buffy's guilt and self-loathing and anger. Um, Spike, big deal. He won't do anything. Our man Angel here likes to talk, but he's not much for action. All hat and no cattle. Which, again, this is now Spike challenging Angel. What An- And that's what Angel did earlier when he challenged Spike. Um, and then Angel grabs Drew to himself, stares at Spike, and touching her while saying, I don't know about that. I think this whole Slayer thing has run its course. I'm ready to focus my energy elsewhere. And like, Drew is definitely loving the attention, but I also kind of feel bad for her because once again, she's a victim in all of this. She doesn't, like, she knows the guys are kind of like using her, but they're also using her. Like, I don't think that well, I know Angelus doesn't truly care for her. He's only using her body to get at Spike, whereas Spike, who truly does care for her, is having to watch his girlfriend being taken by this guy. It's just, it's really dark. I don't know. I feel like Drew is just whoring herself out here. You think so? <laughs> I think she's just being a hoe. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know. I just feel like, because like, as he's talking to her, mm. she's like, hmm. Like, she's just milking it. And I'm like, yo, you're right in front of your actual love who you sired. And he's watching it. And you know that's not fun for him to watch. Like, But she also has no soul. So I feel like it kind of makes sense. But still, I totally I know. I know. Like, so I don't know. I don't feel like she's really much of a victim. Like, I do see, like, she is being used in age as a choice. But she's enjoying it. Yeah, she is. Like, because if she, like... I think kind of what you've said in previous episodes, like she's really in control. And I think like if she mm. wanted to, she could stop it. Mm-hmm. And so she's choosing not to. Mm. That's a good of... take. Yeah. No, I agree with that, actually. Yeah, for sure. I think that Drew also really likes being fought over. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Again, just liking the attention. Totally. Um, the camera zooms in on Spike really as he slowly looks up. And I feel like this is that moment. This is that moment where he's like, that's it. I've got to do something. Like, I, I need to step it up. Um, it's interesting too at the beginning of the episode, like who Spike is now versus who he was in school hard is so drastically different. He was just bold and brash and loud and like taking risks and taking chances. And now he's just very quiet and defeated. He's, 
He's simmering and he's going to boil over at some point. I feel like he still is that guy. It's just that he knows Angelus. And he knows that most of the time that kind of spike at the beginning of this season works. But I think he knows Angelus and he knows that if he's going to beat Angelus, he has to beat him at his own game. Well, and who's been his main motivator this entire season? Drusilla. And he's watching Drusilla being taken from him and allowing herself to be taken from him. And he's he's over there going, what else do I have to live? Like, he's very defeated. He has nothing else to live for, you know? Angelus, what with you being special needs boy, I figure I should stick close to home. You and Drew can always use another pair of hands. The hurt and anger on Spike's face, like, <laughs> James Marsters is phenomenal. So at the school, Willow runs into Giles, who's still inside the library, although neither one of them is supposed to be there. Giles is trying to contact Jenny, compliments Willow on her use of sulfur, but is so distracted, he doesn't even say, um, it's unsafe, like, you shouldn't be here, like, go home. He's just like, okay, bye, like, see you later. Cordy goes to the women's bathroom, checks out her bite in the mirror while Buffy hears the music in the hallway, very reminiscent of Out of Mind, Out of Sight. Sees an old poster announcing the Sadie Hawkins dance on the music room door, which Marcy's lair was up in the music room too. Like there's just a lot of similarities. It's very odd. James and Grace are inside dancing. Meanwhile, Xander's in the cafeteria that is still very much snake infested. Willow gets to her position on top of the staircase. Buffy's still watching James and Grace. And you can just... I think this moment is so interesting because you see Buffy go from her harsh stance Mm -hmm. to more of like a, oh, these are human beings who were in love. Dark and twisted as it may be, they loved each other. And they didn't deserve to go out the way that they did. You can almost tell that she's feeling what they're feeling. She's like, oh, they're in love. Because like, you can kind of see a smile almost on her. She's just like, oh, like watching their love. Yeah, her face visibly softens as she watches them. And you could tell she's feeling what they're feeling. And she's remembering back, too. Suddenly, James's face looks all decomposed and signaling the poltergeist is unhappy. Half Cordy's face suddenly is covered in horrible burns. Willow's pulled into the floor by the same hand that pulled Xander into the locker. Um, the floor turns into a liquid. She screams for Giles. Thankfully, he hears her, pulls her out in time. Giles lighting the candle when Willow's hands are shaking too badly for her to do it herself is seriously beautiful. Mm-hmm. Really good imagery there. And I mean, like, Jaws can probably guess what they're trying to do, but he still doesn't know, but he just, like, helps her anyway. Mm -hmm. It's really great. On the balcony, Buffy puts on her necklace of sulfur, then suddenly gets a flash of the past and sees the scene where James chases Grace to the balcony and how he shoots her, then goes to the music room and shoots himself. She snapped back to the present by decomposed James, grabbing her and yelling, get out. (laughs) Destiny's having flashbacks. (laughs) Seriously, that stuff is scary. (laughs) I also just, like, thought about, like, how traumatizing it must have been for Buffy to have to, like, see, one, their love story kind of unfold, but then, like, also him shoot her, and then him Mm. go and, like, you know, shoot himself. Like, that's just, on top of everything that she's had to go through, I, I can't imagine seeing that. Well, probably also feeling it, too. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that actually, like, it's played off by the end, like... Because she was in their shoes, she understood. She was able to get to that place. But they don't talk about the fact that, like, she actually was in their shoes and had to feel all of that. Um, but I think the idea is that she already is kind of feeling all those feelings. 
And then being slapped back by a zombie James. Yeah, I know. Get out. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> The scene with Cordy and Willow being attacked are tributes to the horror movie Poltergeist, specifically when Mary peels his face off and Diane was drowning in a river of skeletons, in case any of you have seen Poltergeist, which now I officially never want to see because that sounds scary. Oh my god, wait, actually- I haven't seen Poltergeist? Poltergeist is no. like, it's one of those movies it's that was classic. terrifying for its time, but then you watch it now and you're like, it's not that scary. But okay. Did you, oh, totally. Well, did you know that, Um, I just learned this recently and I was like, I need other people to hear about this because that's horrible. But there's a scene where um, I think the mom gets pulled under- She's swimming. In the sea of all of those like skeletons. Well, they didn't tell the actress that they were real- skeletons bones bones they didn't tell her until afterwards and she was traumatized afterwards yeah and supposedly it's one of those sets that were like haunted yep because um re- the like, really little haunted. girl the little girl who's mm-hmm. like there here she um passed away i think within that year from yeah it was really sad and yeah. awful it's like it's one of those yeah. sets. But like, it's a same, good movie. Same thing with um, The Shining, where just a lot of stuff happened to the cast, but it yeah. made good well, performances. Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick was awful yeah. in so yeah. many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is okay and recovering. Willow tells Giles that it can't be Jenny, that she would never be this mean, causing him to admit that he knows that it's not her. He just wanted it to be her because he misses her. The bell chimes. Midnight, the gang chants, I shall confront and expel all evil out of marrow and bone, out of house and home, never to come here again. And then, oh, the stillness, along with Christoph Beck's, like, strings that play, so good. It it sounds like, it, you know, that that feeling you get when you have, like, in, like not that we've all felt this, but, you know, like, that feel you get when you hear, like, the strings running up, and it's, like, supposed to sound like insects, like, skittering up the walls or something like that. They play that right here. The Indiana Jones right on uh, Disneyland. That's exactly what I thought. That's what I always think of. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Exactly. Swarm of insects comes out of nowhere, chasing them all out of the school, and it covers it. Um, And you can tell that shot cost a lot for them budget-wise because they use this shot of them standing in front of the school, I think, like two or three times. And sometimes in the wrong context, it's pretty funny. Um, So in the Summer's house, the gang is all sitting down discussing what to do except for Buffy, who is standing near the glass doors. And this is shot really well because they kind of move around so you can see everybody in one continuous shot. But then as they circle around, you see Buffy in the background. And as the camera goes to land on Giles, Buffy is technically still in the center of the shot. She's just in the background showcasing that as Giles is talking, he's really talking – as he's talking about James, he's really talking about Buffy. It's It's really pretty. Giles explains that James is reliving the night of the dance when he killed Grace that is common for a spirit to recreate a tragedy to dwell on it. Giles says that he is trying to resolve the issues that are keeping him in limbo. Buffy jumps in and says James wants forgiveness. And you can see her like physically wrestling with this. She knows. Well, she's also been staying there for a long time, like really just like in her feels. You could tell that she's been really like – it's been taking a toll on her. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I'd like to chime in. Like, this is where one of my favorite quotes comes um, when she's explaining, like, he doesn't deserve yes. it. And then um, it just goes where Giles is like, to forgive is an act of compassion. It's not done because they deserve it. It's done because mm-hmm. they need it. And I think that, like, that just goes for everything. Like, you know, it is compassionate because it's unconditional. Mm-hmm. Um like, just because 
I don't know. I think like not to get too religious in this, but it goes like with how, you know, you know, Christians are saved by God's forgiveness. We're not doing anything on our end. Um, and that can show like how we can do as how we can go to be better people and how like God has called us to be forgiving of others because we're forgiven. Yeah, absolutely. My father-in-law said something a couple years ago that's just resonated with me. He says that the best feeling in the world is forgiveness um, because it, mm-hmm. it means relief. And I was like, I think I think it's it's the best feeling in the world because it's hope. I think yeah. forgiveness is hope. And I and that's what you're you're giving to someone when you forgive them. But more than that too, like you're also allowing yourself not to become bitter and to fester mm-hmm. in this. Like forgiveness is really the best thing for all parties, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's also absolutely. I like how um I, I mean I agree with everything you guys just said, but um I like how afterwards um Buffy mentions how he got in an act of passion. Mm-hmm. She says James destroyed him. the one person he loved in a moment of blind passion. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I just one, obviously a call back to the episode Passion. Yeah. But two, it's like this whole time we're seeing Buffy kind of like show her own feelings. And so it's like you're hearing how much she blames herself. And how much she's like, Oh, I got in an act of passion and killed mm-hmm. the person I loved. You know, because she really does feel like she killed Angel. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this scene is just very reminiscent from the car scene in Innocence when Giles basically tells Buffy, like, you know, you're not to blame. I don't blame you. This is this is taking it a step further. Giles is going, I don't blame you. Back there, don't blame yourself here. You know, you need to, like, move forward with this. Um, and I also love that Giles talks about how James – you know, he, he wants forgiveness. He's possessing someone. The same thing happens over and over again, dooming himself to kill grace over and over again in some sort of purgatory state. Forgiveness is impossible. And I think in a lot of ways too, this is echoes of angel as well. Angel is stuck as Angelus. And I think, and I'm, I mean, I'm assuming here, but I wouldn't be surprised if Angel's experiencing what's happening at the same time as Angelus is simply because we know that Angelus is aware of what's happened while Angel was in control. And so in a lot of ways, like Angel himself is stuck in kind of a purgatory as well as he, they're both connected. He's having to live through this nightmare as well. And every time, you know, the last time when Angel came back uh, or when Angel got his soul, that's how he lived every day, having to live with this purgatory state and this lack of forgiveness. So I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful moment and it echoes so many of the characters very well and where they're at. Well, I think it also goes into the sense of like, you know, not to be like black and white, but it's like you could either be, you could either forgive or be forgiven and let this go and not hold mm-hmm. that. Or mm-hmm. you can be in your sense of purgatory, you know, and just mm-hmm. wallow and fester into this because that's what it's going to do is just fester furthermore and just infect you. Yeah. Buffy says, no matter if he knows now it was wrong and selfish and stupid, it is just something he's going to have to live with. And Xander being insightful for like the first time he can't live with it buff he's dead whoa double meaning man yes finally giving some like really good lines to xander yeah and then buffy storms off cordelia okay over identify much (laughs) like like it's just funny to see how insightful these characters are whether they realize it or not um 
Buffy finds the Sadie Hawkins poster, hears a male voice, I need you, walks out the door like she's possessed. The gang tries to figure out what to do next. Giles thinks the spirit is too powerful and angry to try again right now. I ha- Wait, I have a question. I was going to say, do you guys think that Buffy was possessed going to the school? Or do you think that she heard James calling out to her and she wanted to answer and help him? I think it's the latter. Hmm. Hmm. You think what? Because I, think I don't think I don't think she was actually possessed on the way to the school. Because mm-hmm. everyone else we saw, even um, Giles, when he heard the voice, he wasn't. He just you don't you don't get hear it exactly. You don't get possessed until you're yeah. in the hallway. Okay, so, so I think Leah, she- you're going into my next question then. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you. So when it gets to the point where they're there. And the first thing you hear Buffy say when she's in the school is, you're the only one, the only person I can talk to. Do you think that's Buffy or do you think that's James? That's totally Buffy. I wrote that too. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had the same question. I said, I feel like, see, I saw it as Buffy was possessed from the moment that she was in the kitchen. I feel like the way that she's kind of walking in that state, that dreamlike state, she's dazed. There's a very clear like look on her face and then she kind of just walks out the door. And I think- that could be her numbness again to all of it. Yeah, I agree. It could yeah. just be Buffy feeling what she's feeling and just numb to it all. But even when she says, know, you're the only person I can talk to, like that feels like something that felt like Buffy saying it. It didn't feel Or her like realization. James. Yeah. Or her realization. Mm-hmm. She's like, of course, it's you and me. Exactly. Well, she knew it was Angel. She didn't even turn around. She was like, you're the only person I could talk to. And then he's like, gosh, Buff, that's really pathetic. Just being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I kind of felt like – it doesn't really matter in that moment because at this point, James and Buffy are feeling the exact same thing. So whether or not she's possessed or not, she's now just exemplifying how she's been feeling this entire time. So yeah. when she says, you're the only yeah. one I can talk to, it she's talking about Angel, but she's also talking about James too because she recognizes that James understands her, but she's also talking as James talking about Buffy too. I James I, I think it, it works either way. I just like to think that she wasn't just because I feel like it mm. for me, I like the fact that she went there because she felt sad and guilty and wanted to help him because she actually felt mm. some sort of remorse for him. And then Kate not to just get shot. Right. Because she was just so done. Um, but then, then came in and then just knew it was Angel and just like felt like she just needed to say it, like as if she was talking to Angel. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that works very well story wise. It's just an interesting concept. That's funny that like we yeah. all kind of like wrote it down. We're too. on the same wavelength. This is amazing. <laughs> amazing. Good analysis, guys. Good analysis. All right. Yeah. So the gang figures out that Buffy's gone. See the poster. Uh, the go to the school. Giles says that James is calling her that he needs her to reenact what happened on the night he killed Grace, that he wants to change things and make a happy ending. Will is like, she's going to get shot. And Giles is like, the school is deserted. There's no way for James to play his part. There's no man inside for him to possess. No, there is not a man. There is a demon, though. Um, And Angelus, fun facts about wasps. There is uh, footage, I will definitely post it, of David Boreanaz acting out this scene and he's instead of saying wasps he says fun fact about wops 
<laughs> Wait, I haven't seen this. What? <laughs> yeah, it's a behind That's the scenes terrible. on YouTube. And then he goes, wait a minute. I'm so sorry. I just said WAPS and everybody just starts dying laughing. I haven't WAP seen before this. it was a thing. I know, oh right? <laughs> yeah, so look go up. look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. I love how you assumed I had seen it just because I see. I like, thought you'd all the seen bloopers, it. Sorry. That's funny. I know I've never seen that. Tabby did have some insight regarding like, because I think um, when we were watching it, I had mentioned that like it's kind of giving off like the plagues mm. and the, I don't know, Tabby, you want to go in more into that? Uh, sure. I mean, like one of my favorite childhood movies is um, The Prince of Egypt and it's just a phenomenal DreamWorks like masterpiece. Um, if you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. Just truly just – Or just listen amazing. to the soundtrack, Literally, man. <laughs> yes. But it just gave me kind of vibes of like – So in the movie, God um, had – And in the like the Bible too. It's not just like in the movie. But um, he put like the 10 plagues on Egypt um, waiting for them to return as people who were slaves. And he kept going until – he like made it stop when they did what he asked them to do. And so I kind of got the same vibes of James where he's like, I'm going to keep doing all these things. The wasps and the snakes are what we see. Um, and in the, the movie and or the Bible, it has um, locusts as one of them and then has frogs as another. Um, and so that just kind of gave me huge vibes where he's like, I'm going to give you all these trials and give you all these things until my spell and or what I want from you. See, I got the same thing, but kind of from a different movie. I was reminded of The Mummy. Oh, another great well, one. I think the the 90s or whatever, where the, bo- the Mummy. The book, the book or the movie? Just kidding. The movie, movie. obviously. Yeah. Which I'm one has Jonathan Frazier in it? The movie. Yeah, for real. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, um, but I kind of just got, like, vibes because it's, like, the same thing where, like, The Mummy, yeah. in order to get what he wants, he brings plagues and, like, all this stuff. So I got huge vibes from that. I think I think it's symbolic of when we repress emotions, especially bitterness and stuff, it starts to – it comes out in other ways regardless of whether we mean it to or not. Mm. And so I think this is – James's subconscious is lashing out because he's in so much pain. And I think that's what it's supposed to be. But yeah, I – I definitely felt like the 10 plagues was like, all right, what's next? You know, I was waiting for Cordelia to turn on the water in the sink and the blood to come out and stuff, you know. Actually, but- that's- or uh, you could think of uh, Hercules where he's like, what's next? A bag of locusts? <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm moving to Sparta. <laughs> like one cricket pops up and he's like, that's it. <laughs> all right. So he says, um, Angela says that tonight is special. He wanted to look his best for Buffy. Do you guys think Angelus came to kill Buffy? Well, yeah, they said that. Yeah, of course. Oh, never mind. I, I think he that. probably <laughs> thought it was a Would it be the first time he killed someone in this school? <laughs> I know, right? Like when Drusilla told him she's dancing with death, like he probably thought, great, this is a great opportunity. Let me get her. I think Spike was also baiting him too. And so I think he was like, all right, fine. I'm going to go kill her. See, I'll show you. She doesn't bother me. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's true. I, I never caught that before. This is the, my first time watching it and going, oh, shoot. I think he was like there to like do some damage. Little did he know. Yes. Yeah, going to get some smoochies instead and get oh. shot. <laughs> <laughs> he comes back and just aggressively like showering himself. Violated with love. He's like, ah, I wanted to kill people tonight. I didn't think I'd be making out with my ex-lover. I'm getting shot. 
<laughs> so disgusting. All right. So these scenes were filmed first with Meredith Salinger and then Christopher Gorham, who played Grace and James. Um, this was so that the film could be watched and analyzed by Sarah and David when it came to their turn to filming it, which is why it mirrors itself so well. And it also speaks to just like the talent of both actors. I mean, it is hard to find actors that in the Buffyverse, at least that can match the caliber of these two, especially when they're together and the emotion, like, could you mm. imagine being cast and being like, yes, yeah, so you have to like portray one of the greatest loves of all time. Like, you know what I mean? I just, that would mm. be so much pressure and they, they really nailed it. They did a good job. Um, there's also behind the scenes footage of Sarah Michelle Geller, um, kind of not breaking down, but just like saying, I'm, I'm too tired. I can't do this. And David Boreanaz, like touching her face and being like, it's okay. You can do it. Was that this, episode? this episode? I thought it was innocent. No, this episode. Isn't that so sweet? Oh, I love that clip. I know. So sweet. Yeah. You guys got to send me that. I'd love to see that. Yeah. I'll, I'll post I'll send it. it to you. <laughs> Yeah, it's really great. And I think, I mean, imagine the emotional toll this must have taken to like work through all of this. I I just props to her. And I mean, they're shooting at night too. Like it's late. It's dark. They're tired. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Michelle Geller said many times, this was very hard because David was kind of like her person on set that she really relied on. And so having him play someone that was causing so much of an emotional toll for her character that she had to work through was exhausting for her. And so it added to the another layer of exhaustion and stuff. And so he tried to be as like mm -hmm. helpful as he could in between scenes. It's just really precious. That is precious. Aww. But again, the and series, people say like, they were in love. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. They dated. Like, not go through the series and not have an emotional toll. Like I can't, Oh, assume yeah. that none of these actors didn't come back with something. Seriously. Mm -hmm. So Buffy still isn't facing him. You're the only one, the only person I can talk to. Gosh, Buff, that's really pathetic. Suddenly Buffy spins around, except this time it's James's words coming out of her mouth, not Grace's. So I was going to read. I wrote down what um, the other characters or the other um, couples said and compared it to what Buffy and Angel said because there's slight variations in the wording. So – you can't make me disappear when you say it's over, is what um, the janitor says. Buffy says, you can't make me disappear just because you say it's over. Just because you say it's over, not when you say it's over. It's putting it into the present tense. Um, and then the teacher, there's no way we can be together. No way people will ever understand except it. Angel doesn't actually say that line. That's when he approaches her and says, actually, I can. In fact, and then uh, is that what this is about? What other people think is what the janitor said, but Buffy doesn't say it. They kind of just like skip over that part simply because it's not really relevant to the, the characters. So the teacher says, no, I just want you to be able to have some kind of a normal life. We can never have that. Don't you see? Um, Angelus says the same thing. Uh, teacher, I don't give a damn about a normal life. I'm going crazy not seeing you. I think about you every minute. Buffy also says this, the same words. Teacher, I know she goes in to touch his face, but it's over. It has to be. And we see instead of Angel going in to touch Buffy's face, we see Grace as she goes to touch James' face. I know, but it's over. It has to be. And then it pans over and we see Angelus touching Buffy's face. But do you guys notice that he's wearing his Claudal ring? 
Um, and the heart is still pointed at the fingers, which is just another symbolic mm. reminder that he doesn't belong to her anymore. It's really sad. The whole it's mm. over, it has to be, and the ring's there to kind of like a visual representation. It's it's just well Or just done. reminding us like their relationship, like you're not going to have a normal life. Like they would never have a normal life. Like, you know, just every single dialect within these lines is extremely like, like it's just so good. (laughs) Yeah. No, or that their hearts can never really belong to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they love each other, but they can never have like Buffy slash James said than a normal life, you know? Yeah. Um, and then the janitor says, come back here. We're not finished yet. You don't care anymore. Is that it? Buffy says, come back here. We are not finished. She doesn't say finished yet. Again, Buffy talks about things in the present tense, not a finished yet. It's just, it's very interesting, like the the subtle word choice there. It's It's very much like I'm still hanging on to hope. Obviously, finished yet is as well, but the wording is just slightly different, slightly different connotation. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I feel is the same. Um, then tell me you don't love me. Say it. Um, same. Will that help? Is that what you have to hear? I don't. I don't. Now let me go. You see grace. Is that what you need to hear? Will that help? I don't. And then we switch to Buffy and then we hear their theme song very briefly as Angelus says, I don't. Now let like, now let me go. Ugh. And then you see Buffy. No, a person doesn't just wake up and stop loving somebody, which is different from what the janitor says. No, a person doesn't just wake up one day and stop loving somebody. It has the one day. Buffy saying doesn't just wake up and stop loving somebody is a very clear callback. It's not we're, we're not just talking in about sense, any one day. We're talking mm-hmm, about a specific mm-hmm. day. Like it's very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see James and Buffy pull out a gun. Buffy, I'm not afraid to use it. I swear if I can't be with you, Angelus, oh my God. Buffy chases Angel out onto the balcony. Stop it. Don't make me, Angel. All right. Just give me the gun. I know you don't want to do this. Let's both just calm down. And now we finally see Grace. We see this moment. We've seen the moment where Grace dies. We didn't see the moments leading up to it. Um, And the gun goes off. And the the gang hears the shot. That would have been terrifying if you're over there like, oh, no. (laughs) I think it makes it even more sad because this whole time we've been thinking that you know, he killed her, like, maliciously out of, like, anger and, like, all this stuff. Yeah. But we see that this was clearly an accident, which I think makes it even more sad because that's exactly what Buffy went through. Even though he still had the gun pointed at her head, Yeah, though, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. It, accident. I didn't mean to shoot yeah, her. Yeah, I just yes, was, like, I trying mean, to scare her. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, he, you know, he had intentions with the gun and stuff, but I, I truly believe he would have never fired it on purpose. Like, I think he was just mm-hmm. so caught up in anger. And then you see him react, and it was in the middle of him saying something. Like, it was absolutely an accident. Yeah, I think, it, again, like... I think the one thing that I have to try to remember, too, is that, like, these are all teenagers. They're doing teenage things, being stupid and being, like, not that all teenagers are stupid, but, like, literally, scientifically speaking, they're not using their full, like, you know, rational senses. And so, like, for him, he's in a moment of blind passion. And I, I totally agree with Leah where I don't think that, like, I think he was using the gun as scare because he's just very impulsive right now he's just like 
you know, I just, I want her back. I got to get her. Like maybe this will like scare her back, you know, who knows? But I don't think it was like malicious intent. I think it was like that I'm at my last resort. Maybe, you know, who knows, you know, who knows when people are in that state that they do that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, not trying to like excuse, but definitely like the look of horror and shock on Buffy's face when it goes off is supposed to mirror how James was feeling and it was very clear it was not intentional. But also, this is the first time I've picked this up on this rewatch, but only Buffy says this out of everyone else where she says, don't treat me like I'm such a, and she was about to say kid before she shot him. And and we've seen throughout their whole relationship or not whole the relationship but like throughout the last couple seasons where it's like sometimes he'll make decisions because he'll be like but Buffy you're still 17 but Buffy you're still so young you don't know what you want you look into the future and you want all these things and she's like but I want you so I think that like for her she's like I may be young she's like but I know that I loved you and I know that what we had was real so by her saying that it's like like don't talk to me like I'm someone who doesn't know what I'm feeling or doesn't know what I'm going through. Like I'm going through some real things, even though I'm so young. Yeah. Yeah. Especially. And I don't even think Angel was the only one that would do that. You know, like Giles, yeah. his, her mom, I think mm-hmm. they, in school hard, that was the whole mm-hmm. emphasis of that. She was just being treated like a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly she, I mean, and yeah, we've talked about this before, like the expectations that's put on her is so adult-like and yet they're over there like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Like, and then when she has moments where she is a teenager, they're like, well, stop acting like a teen. But then they're like, but then Buffy, you have a great responsibility. So it's very like – It's like mm-hmm. when it's convenient. Yeah. Yeah. And it, mm-hmm. it makes sense why that would take an emotional toll on her, you know? We see the switch back and forth as both Angel and Grace fall to the floor and Buffy and James go to the music room. Um, and then Angel's eyes open. It speaks a lot to this episode that you're like, oh my gosh, she shot Angel. And you see him down there and there's like a moment where you're like, okay, like, does, is he, like, does it affect him differently, you know? But yeah, it, this is just brilliant. Um, music room Buffy goes to the record player and plays I Only Have Eyes for You by the Flamingos, the song that we saw Grace and James dancing to earlier on. Uh, fun fact, this song was also briefly featured in the Grudge 2's trailer that Sarah Michelle Gellar was in. Isn't that funny? It's a theatrical trailer. I mean, it is a creepy song. (laughs) (laughs) Now it is, now that we've like, you know. Now? Yeah. (laughs) It's like uh, Tiptoe Through the Tulips is completely just like ruined for me. (laughs) No. Thank you for that. (laughs) I know. Thanks for the nightmares now. forgot about that Serves you guys right. You're over here talking about skeletons in the river and poltergeist. That's That's like my nightmare. That's fair. That's no. Ten times worse, I feel. Oh my gosh. Insidious gave me legit. Insidious was (gasps) very How is real skeletons? Like less than a song. Yeah. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm with you, Sarah. Skeletons <laughs> for the win. <laughs> no, that that's definitely scarier. Like, um, wait, what's the movie? Insidious. Yeah. I actually didn't find Insidious the, as scary just because it's all like fake the realms and stuff. But it's like if it's paranormal stuff or just stuff that like happens that freaks me the heck out. I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, I I am a hundred percent with you. Everything that Conjuring. Oh no. Mm. Yep. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Buffy looks in the mirror, sees James staring back at her while she lifts the gun up to her head, but is stopped by Angel slash Grace. 
And I love that we don't see any more flashbacks to Grace. We only see Angel at this point because it's very, very important. Don't do this, Buffy, but I killed you, Angel. It was an accident. It wasn't your fault, Buffy, but how, but it is my fault. How could I, Angel? Hush. I'm the one who should be sorry, James. You thought I stopped loving you. I never did. I loved you with my last breath. Oh, my and it God. makes sense because in surprise we hear him yell Buffy as he turns into Angelus, mm-hmm. like he's thinking of her till the very end. Oh my gosh! Even Angelus get us in the heart, man. <laughs> oh. Literally, we see Grace and James kiss. Then Buffy and Angel, as a bright glow goes over their head, and James and Grace finally have peace. And then they keep kissing for a minute. <laughs> they don't stop. Mm-hmm. And Buffy. It's a sloppy one, too. <laughs> like, it's a wet just, one. It, it's sure. one of those where you like, you see the string. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, oh, okay. They're going what if it was it. just like Sarah Michelle Geller and David who just were caught in the moment? They're like, keep rolling. Don't stop them. We'll just, we'll, we'll figure it out. I don't know if you guys knew this, um, but I remember like when. They had to shoot, like, I think it was probably in the earlier, like, in season one when James and, or not James, when David and Sarah were, like, having to do the makeout scenes, David wanted to take the total non-serious route and, like, would eat, like, so much garlic and so much stinky stuff mm-hmm. so that his breath would be gross and disgusting and make yep. it extremely hard to kiss him. Jennifer Lawrence and um, Liam Hemsworth in uh, The Hunger Games would do the same thing. They would have like eat outs of like disgusting Tuna and food. pickles and relish and all that uh-huh. good stuff. Yep. Why do they think that's funny? I've heard of several different think, actors doing that. I'm like, I think why? they do it to kind Make of like, yeah, cut the tension. It probably helps a lot with the tension of it all. Um, mm. Yeah. But it also like is probably funny to watch the other person have to struggle through having to like kiss you while you're like – And enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. And act like they enjoy it while you know that they're dying inside. There's like – Yeah. I couldn't do the scene though. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I really I'm can't. Like, like, I'm right can't. now. Y'all smell like fish. <laughs> this is nasty. Yeah. Buffy, Angel, like, and you can tell she's kind of asking, like, is it you? Angelus growls, pushes her away, and I, I love that we don't see his reaction. It stays on Buffy as we just hear like desks clattering, like he's just running out the door. But it's just so sad. Like you see her have hope for like half a second, thinking it's Angel. And then she's just going back into that acceptance again. Yep. In the library, everything is back to normal. The snakes and the wasps are gone. Giles goes to check on Buffy, who's sitting in his office. James picked me. I guess I was the one he could relate to. He was so sad. Giles, well, they can both rest now. Buffy, I still, part of me just doesn't understand why she would forgive him. Giles, does it matter? Buffy, no, I guess not. And Giles smiles. He knows that Buffy finally understands. And I think I... I think in some ways, Buffy's guilt was a shield for Angelus. Her whole give me time and innocence. And in a lot of ways, she's shed that and now can do what she needs to do and move forward. Like she hasn't forgiven Angelus, but she knows that that doesn't matter in the long scheme of things because she can rest knowing that she did nothing wrong. Um, And I think it's important to remember that like forgiveness doesn't have a specific time frame and it takes time. And I think yeah. that fact that Buffy's opened forgiveness now is enough for right now. And it is a change and she can move forward through that process. I think the saddest part, one of the saddest parts in this episode is right here when she talks first about how she found it was interesting that James chose her because he could relate to her and then follows that up with saying he was so sad. 
rather than saying like I've been going through a lot of things, she's like he re- like he could relate to me. He was so sad, saying that like she herself has just been really heartbroken. Well, I think even too, just masking it over, like she was masking that sadness with anger this whole episode pretty yeah. much. And like, that's kind of like how James was doing with the whole, you know, events of the poltergeist. He was just angry. He was violent. And deep down, he was sad. And, you know, she illustrates that too. Um, and just like looking at those stages of grief, like, you know, anger and sadness, like if you lose somebody, you can see so many times often depicted in shows or in movies when somebody is so sad, the loss of a loved one, they're going to act in anger. They're going to act in violence. Like they correlate so much, especially in grief that I think that that was really portrayed well in this episode. Mm -hmm. The fact that Buffy can acknowledge that is huge. I think that, you know, like you said, the anger was there. And she kept, you know, I'm angry, I'm angry. And she also now finally understands James and has compassion for him versus she just like couldn't understand him and was angry at him. So it's a whole, it's a whole new level of forgiveness and understanding. And yeah, we finally kind of get to see Buffy a little bit back. Um, so the mansion, Angelus is grubbing himself furiously in the garden waterfall. Spike, you might want to let up. They say when you've drawn blood, you've exfoliated. Angelus, what do you know about it? I'm not the one who was freaking violated. You didn't have this thing in you, which I was like, double meaning. He's talking about James and Angel, his soul. I think it's so interesting that like... I don't know, we're seeing Angelus react this way, even though, because it's like, usually you would just kind of see him shrug it off and be like, well, that was annoying. But like, one, I think it reminded him of the thing he hates the most, which is humanity. But I think it's also just interesting that like, we're just seeing his like, anger towards love, towards Buffy, towards humanity. Yeah. And I mean, it's ironic because technically Angelus is the one that's violating Angel. It's Angel's body. Angelus is taking over that. So it's like, for once, Angelus is getting a taste of his own medicine. Like, he's feeling what Angel feels like all the time. Drusilla, what was it a demon? Angelus, love. Poor Angel. I just love how dramatic it is. <laughs> like, he's just like, so dramatic with like, ugh. I violated. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. And Jell's is so melodramatic. <laughs> Not even just mellow. It's straight up. Like, yeah. full blown drama over here. <laughs> I love Drusilla taking the water that Angelus sprayed everywhere and tasting it. Either she's relishing in his pain so much so that she wants to taste it, or she's turned on. Or she's turned on, or she's craving that love for herself. Like, she's like, love. You know what I mean? Like, wow. It's just, yeah. You have it's, Spike. It's like, Spike doesn't know. give her enough love. I think that she's relishing in his pain because she finds pleasure in pain. Quite possibly. Yeah, she's sick. Yeah. Which we love. Which we love. <laughs> Angelus, let's get out of here. I need a real vile kill before sent up to wipe this crap out of my system. Drusilla, of course, will find you a nice toddler. Oh. <laughs> like, I, I, honestly, I was like, no, 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 not toddler. Have you ever met a toddler? And I was like, as a parent, you're like, oh, not my toddler. Yeah, well, but like, seriously, toddlers are kind of like cruel and vicious. I I mean, babies, yes, but toddlers, I'm like, mm, are you sure they're so innocent? Like, I don't know that that's really going to do much of a terrible thing. Yeah, you should meet Gwen. <laughs> Try messing with Gwen. So Drusilla growls very seductively and predator-like at Angel and then immediately just turns and looks in spite and goes, want to come, pet? Like, she's like one way with Angelus and another way with Spike, which Spike 
wants to be seen as vicious and in control. And that's what he sees as manly and tough. He doesn't want to be talked down to like he needs to be babied. And so like, I just feel bad for Spike all around. I think he's just getting the short end of the stick. I don't think it's that often either. I know I could be wrong, but maybe I don't feel like it's that often where Drew calls him pet. It's almost always he calls her pet. You know, as in like he is the dominant one and she's the submissive one. But right now, obviously, roles are reversed. Yep. And that I think that's the whole point of this episode. Roles mm-hmm. are reversed, right? And I mean, they've been like this since surprise when Drusilla has right. taken the dominant <laughs> tabby. <laughs> and she's the female. It's all the females that are dominant in this uh-huh. episode. Ah, Ooh, yeah. uh-huh. these radicals <laughs> with their hairy legs. The hairy leg <laughs> feminist. <laughs> Above his time. Uh, I know. So Spike looks down at he looks down as Angelus comes back and says, No can do Drew. And Angelus like puts himself between them and stands there and like has his back to and to Spike as he's talking about him. Like he's not even there. It's so humiliating. I'm sure he'd be hell on wheels, but we don't have much time. Gotta travel light. Pat Please, the hell on wheels line had me. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be hell on wheels. And you just, I think I would like disintegrate if someone was saying that about me and I was in a wheelchair. Like, I think I would collapse. I would dust myself if I were a vamp. I'd be like, all right, that's enough life for me. That's the last straw. I think he was, and he just saved it till they walked out. That's (laughs) it. I'm moving to Sparta. Well, guys, it's even worse because when we meet Spike in school hard, he's literally hell on wheels. Like he comes in on his car, like mows down the the sign. That's like his mo- that's who he is. That's a persona he puts on. And so Angelus is just I mean, like, how insulting. He's just insulted like every part of Spike. Like, yeah. Puts his hands on Spike's shoulders. Sorry, try to have fun without me. Both he and Drew take off with Drew not even looking back at her. You notice how she just like runs up behind Angelus, doesn't even look back at Spike. Oh my goodness, Drusella, you had it all. Spike smiles sinisterly. Oh, I will. He stands up from his wheelchair, kicks it violently sooner than you think. The ultimate power move. Uh, no, I think he's just a big toddler kicking. No, not like, not kicking. Like, no, not the wheelchair. Not kicking the wheelchair, but like standing up, playing the long game. Like we're seeing a way smarter side of Spike that we mm-hmm. haven't seen yet. Totally. Yeah. I just still think that the idea of them not even going all the way up the stairs, he has this whole like monologue. And then they're like, what was that, Spike? <laughs> he's just standing there. <laughs> I just feel like the way he kicked, the like it's just like, you vampires and you're dramatic like <laughs> i love heck? it i love it um and we've talked about parallels between spike and buffy before but this is an interesting one um just as buffy forgives herself and finds freedom in moving forward and strength to once again to try to challenge angel so does spike he also finds the strength to get out of his chair and fight for drew and i think that that's a really interesting parallel so all right we did it you guys we did it. We finished it. That was a really good episode. I think that like we had some good analysis and some good stuff to talk about. Well, thank you so much, Destiny, for joining us. I've really enjoyed this and you really gave us some good stuff to think about. And I love that there's someone else who's like participating that has watched the show for longer than I have. I think that like you have some really good thoughts and you will definitely have to have you on mm-hmm. here again for later future seasons. I would love that. It'd be so fun. <laughs> again, I just love 
having friends to talk about Buffy. Yeah, <laughs> like, I that's know. That's what we're here it's for. Very few. That's why we started the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a Instagram if you want to follow us there. It's Becoming Buffy Podcast on Instagram. Or you can email us with any questions or concerns or stuff that we missed, stuff that you want to talk about on Becoming Buffy Podcast at gmail.com. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Destiny. It's been so fun. You need to come back. I definitely loved this. This was just so sweet and so fun. And again, just being able to see Buffy in a new light with friends and just, yeah, everything about it. Was just, I loved it. Thank you guys. And we will see you guys next time. <laughs>